Hello, everybody. Perfect. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very special podcast.、Uh, for the first time on the Transatlantic Rebels, we are doing a book review. And、uh, it is actually in, in, in the title, and、uh, not the title, but in, in the kind of show liner notes that we do do book reviews, but we haven't managed to get round to one thus far. And,、uh, and our special guest today is someone who is so passionate about this book. That I can't wait for us to get going into it really. And、um, his name is Cage Sparks. So, hi, Cage. What it do, Jessel? <laughs> It's an honor to be here. Definitely. I'm a big fan of the show. Good, good,、uh, good. So, yeah, it's, it's, de- it's definitely a pleasure for me to be here. Yeah. And,、uh, and thank you and so、I、much. And I am so excited to discuss about the,、uh, about the book. You know, I've been raving on and on about this book. So, I'm, I'm, I'm gung ho, ready to go. Brilliant. So let me introduce the book. Basically, I'm sure pretty much all of you have heard of、uh, Serena and Venus Williams, the tennis players. Now, this book is by their father. His name is Richard Williams, and he's co written it with someone called Bart Davis. And the title of the book is Black and White The Way I See It. Now,、um, it's not basically a tennis book. Let me, just, let me just say that right now. You might be thinking, oh, you know, he's going to explain everything about what he did with Venus and Serena, and that's all it is. It's really not. It's so much more than that. And we are going to go pretty deep into this book. Obviously, we don't want to spoil every single thing about it, but we're going to assume that you've read it, or by the time you get like halfway through this podcast, you're going to just stop and go and read it yourself. It is honestly one of the best books I think I've ever read, actually,、um, in terms of how it impacted me. It is simply astonishing. And, and the worst thing is, I can't remember who told me to read this book. It was basically someone on Twitter <laughs> said this like about a year ago. And I put it on my list, and they were like, Yeah, this is great, especially if you're black or a father. And I was like, Okay, I'm not black, but I am a father. Fine. So I got it. The only way that I could get it in the UK is it's not on Kindle. I still think it's not on Kindle, actually, bizarrely enough. So I had to get the hard I got、copy. it off Amazon, though. You, did you, have you got a Kindle copy? Yeah. Yeah. In the UK, you can't get Kindle, it.、Yeah. In the UK, you still can't get it on Kindle. So I had to buy the hard copy through Amazon, which took like three weeks to come and cost me almost 20 quid, which is a lot. You know, I'm Indian. I don't like paying that kind of much. But it absolutely was worth the money. So、um, I've, I've just got the hard copy right in front of me here. If you hear me leafing through the book, <laughs> I don't care if it's unprofessional. It's just so good. I, I may actually just kind of just get carried away at points. And、uh, I'm sure Cage will as well. Now,、um, if, the, if the Williams family are listening to this by some miracle of God, then we mean no offense. You know, we're not trying to like take away, you know, readership or anything. If anything, it's the complete opposite. We're trying to inspire anyone who's listening to this to go out. Buy the book and、um, have 
their lives augmented by it. So on that note, if we do happen to quote things from the book, then, you know, you just got to let it go. You just got to let it go. Um, so how did you find out about this book cage? <laughs> That's the most loaded I mean, I th- question. I think, I, think, I think we've got to describe, we've got to describe the situation. So it was one of our really close friends' weddings. So we're in the church service. I, I believe the church service had just, was just about to end. And then Jessel kind of turns to me. And he has this look in his eye. So I'm kind of looking at him and he's like, when was the, what's the last book you kind of read? Because, you know, this is uh, a thing that we always do. We always discuss between ourselves um, different books. He'll, he'll share some books um, with me and I'll share some books with him. Um, so we end up, you know, he ends up talking. But he had this kind of like crazy look in his eye. Like basically, you know, like those street preachers that you see on the street, you had that look in your eye. And for all the time I've ever known Jessel, he's always that calm individual. And he's like Richard Williams. So in my head, I start kind of like thinking Richard Williams, um, black and white Richard Williams. I'm, you mean Serena Williams is that? I, I couldn't understand the look that you had in your, in your eyes and you explaining that this book by this individual was mind-blowing amazing. So uh, it, just, it just didn't make sense. The equation didn't, didn't, didn't add up. So that day, I had to go back home. As soon as I went back home after the wedding... I had to download the book. Wow. And, uh, and how quickly did you read it after actually getting it? I literally read the book. I think I read that night. Literally half of it the next day I'd finished the book. Wow. And this book was amazing. I mean, and the, the, I think the other point that sold it to me was is that I naturally assumed when I read or w- when you told me about the book that it was going to be about Serena and Venus. And the first thing you told me is, it's not even about them. Forget about Serena and Venus, which didn't make any sense to me at the time because I had my preconceived notions of who Richard Williams is. So the first thing I want to do, anybody listening in right now to this podcast, I want you to get a trash bag open that trash bag and any image or vision or what you think Richard Williams is about, put it in that trash bag, open your throne door and kick the fucking trash bag out into the street. (laughs) Come back into the room and sit down because I'm telling you, this book is that great. I mean, I've been hyped. I've been telling everybody, everybody I can meet. I've I've literally turned into a, a Richard Williams disciple i'm like you need to have this book in your life that's how great this book was man and uh, you need to be on some commission from the williams trust or some shit (laughs) you really do (laughs) i mean it's rare that a book impacts me this much and and you know you know me just so i'm i'm into i'm into I'm, i'm into reading you know all the greats but this book i think Firstly, because it was something I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Yeah. And secondly, my idea of who this person was and also all the hardships he's gone through in his life and had to overcome. This book was inspirational. I mean, like, just being honest, he's like a combination of like Mr. Miyagi and Spartacus. Like, it was like, it's literally that that crazy with a mixture of Anthony Robbins. Like, and I know it sounds a bit over the top and crazy, but it's literally that powerful. And all the um, different situations that he has to overcome is, is, is phenomenal. It's absolutely amazing. And 
I, I think, you know, just to reiterate that point, um, if, if the listener thinks we're kind of overhyping this and stuff, then, you know, fair, fair enough. But we got carried away with this book. You know what? Actually, in, in preparation for this podcast, because I, I read the book about, I don't know, what, maybe six, eight months ago, something like that. And um, I hadn't read it since. <laughs> so preparing for this, I was kind of like, look, let's just kind of take it. There's not too many chapters and, the, you know, it's not too long a book and stuff. So I was like, let's just take one little thing from each chapter and then expand about it. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I ended, up, I ended up, I ended up just reading half the book again, and that's why I only got halfway, because I was just reading the goddamn book. I couldn't, I, I'd just be like, yeah, I was trying to be really selective and select like a really clever you quote from you. And I was like, everything in this, everything in each chapter is just so good. And uh, and the point that you made about hardships, I mean, we're going to get into it properly, but, you know, I, I, when I was kind of preparing for this and I was just reading this, oh my God, there was this one bit and I just looked at my wife, I said, we have no problems. <laughs> Yeah, we have no problems. What do you mean? She was like, "What, what do you mean?" <laughs> she was like, what do you, "You know mean? what? Like, do you mean like? Do you mean like today?" Or I was like, "Ever? We don't have any problems ever compared to what is in this book." You know, I was crazy. literally every time I would read a section in the book, and you know when you turn around and there's no one around, but you're like yeah. talking to yourself because you're like, "Oh my, this isn't what?" You know, like I had literally a hundred different moments like that i mean i don't care if you're iceman kuklinski serial killer yeah with ice in your veins you are gonna feel something when you read this book yeah. and i think that's the thing that was so profound um with and i really respect richard williams he was so brutally honest that you couldn't help but be impacted by the message and what he had to say he didn't come with any bullshit he told you how it was the good, the bad, the ugly, he gave, he gave it to you undiluted and raw. And to be honest, with most people, when they're now looking back at their lives and are going to give you the story, they're not going to remember how they necessarily felt or the anger or the rage or the pain or like when they were five or six. But you feel it coming through in the book. You know, he's 70, you know, 70 plus years old when he writes this book, but you can still feel the wounds, the scars, you know, the, the everything still ripe. Like it just happened yesterday. It's just amazing. It is. It's so true. You know, I think that's the, uh, you know, we had a kind of pre-call about this podcast and, and we got a bit carried away, <laughs> ended up talking for almost an hour. <laughs> And we were like, why didn't we just record this? You know, but and just was like, no, stop, stop, yeah, stop. Yeah, we got like, to save gotta... it, man. You got to save it. But, um, but you know, it, it, we were trying to figure out why we both responded to this book so much. And, and that was it. We were trying, you know, we thought it was just so brutally honest. And, and like, he, he's just not even slightly concerned about looking good. It's funny because I read some criticism on this book that said, oh, well, you know, it sounds like certain passages he embellished and stuff like that. And I was like... I don't know. It kind of sounds like he he could not care less what you think about it. Yeah, he he's just like laying it all down. And um, whatever you think about it, you think he he's had enough shit in his life that he just could not care less what you know some nobody is just you know making. And of in it. this and, day and, and and I totally agree. And in this day and age, it's something that everyone has to be so politically correct. <laughs> yeah. This and are so the afraid to say politically correct book yeah. I've ever read and in so, my life. Ever read in my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, listen, we we've got to address the, the, the elephant in the room first, right? Before we get into the podcast. If you are white, then 
first of all, I pray for you if you're going to read this book. Um, for the for the the soul of Richard Williams will find you one day. But second of all, and I'm being flippant about it. It sounds like I'm being flippant, but honestly, second of all, you know, we are going to make references in this book to black and white. I mean, it's in the title of the book. There's a lot of racial stuff going on in this, and you know, we're just we're just going on what the book tells us on what Richard Williams said. We don't mean any offense to anyone. This is all just kind of, you know, this is just, we're taking our own personal slants or, or imagining ourselves in Richard Williams shoes. And, um, I mean, on that note, I think maybe we should just kick off really. I agree. So the first thing about it is, uh, I've actually got the hard copy and the book cover is pretty goddamn dreadful. That's the only bad thing that I will say about the book. And literally when I was about to press the buy button on um, Amazon and I looked at the cover, I was like, I mean, the cover's terrible. I mean, whoever designed the cover, it, it's terrible. I mean, that's the only thing that you can say. But otherwise, everything else about the book is, is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, if you see the cover, basically, it's just, it's got a couple of small shots of Venus and Serena and then it's got one of him looking or two of him looking happy and, and if ever there's a rope a dope it's a picture of richard williams looking happy because after like halfway through your book this book you're just like when has he ever smiled in his life he must never have smiled you know he, uh, aside from the his daughter's winning things it's unbelievable so really i you know i can think of better better covers for this book so if there is a second edition or something then take our advice and just you know redo the cover it would be more impactful but once you get into it um the, the first chapter he basically starts by talking about uh, serena and venus briefly and serena having an injury and then winning wimbledon and stuff like that and it really lulls you into a false sense of security because you're like okay fine you know he's going to talk about his daughters he's going to you know maybe some insight into how he coached them initially and stuff like that Chapter two, nothing to do with I just, anything. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go back. I mean, one little thing with the on. chapter one. I think for me, at least, he was kind of setting the tone of the story, which was kind of trying to portray and showcase the fact that the Williams were survivors and warriors. So right from the get-go, you're having a view into his world because it wasn't just a small illness. Like she basically had a life-threatening illness, had overcome it, has come back, won Wimbledon, but the thing that he was so excited about, and this is in 2012, is not the fact that she's won Wimbledon, it's the fact that she's overcome her illness and still been able to be a champion, but not just a champion on the court, but a champion in life. So I think a lot of people now, when they were watching um, that match in 2012 and they're seeing him cry and they're seeing him being emotional, you don't understand the whole story behind it because he nearly lost his daughter. You know, and I think that's now such a beautiful and kind of like poetic way of him setting the scene of what's to come. And from chapter two, I mean, just so I'll, I'll let you go into it. So, yeah, that was beautifully put. So chapter two, um, there's a place called Shreveport and uh, he's describing his mother and literally the journey of how she struggled to give birth to him because she was just left on a roadside in the pouring rain in a thunderstorm heavily pregnant, in labor, and people are just driving past her. No one helps her for hours on end. She's just struggling step by step. She thinks she's going to die, and eventually someone um, someone helps her and gets her in the car and takes her to hospital, and, uh, and then Richard Williams is born. 
Richard Dove Williams, R.D. Williams. Um, so, I mean, there, there is more to it than that. But um, do you want to do you want to talk about his father or not? Yeah, I mean, even 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 the fact with his mom, and this is the thing that's incredible because even the fact that his mom was born with a hole in her heart. Yeah. I mean, so. I mean, the doctor told us she shouldn't be able to have kids or if she had kids, you know, the, the, the kid would, you know, likely end up dying. Or it, So imagine that already. He's already setting the scene that he wasn't even meant to be there in the first place. And that is a theme that comes back again and again in this yeah. I mean, it's just a miracle. It's an, You know, there are genuine miracles in this life which have nothing to do with God. And you're just like, how is this person alive? let alone how have they thrived in the harshest environments. And that, that is really one of the overarching themes of this book, I guess. Um, and just to summarize, maybe like, you know, just briefly some of the things that happened to him. I mean, he's been shot at, he's been stabbed with ice picks, he's had railroad spikes punched through his leg, he's had dogs set on him, he's had sheriffs, police officers beat him down, he's had fist fights with Compton gangsters, had his teeth knocked out. I mean, nose broken multiple times. Just insane stuff that one of those scenarios happening to one person once would be crazy. But time after time, he defies death. Yeah. It's just, there are so many times it happens that, you know, you've just listed off like 12 things or something and you've probably missed another 20. <laughs> it's, just, exactly. it's just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, so chapter two, really, you know, he's talking about how his mother gave birth to him. His, he's got an absent father who was a real player and a um, bit of a Lothario and stuff like that and had very, very little to do with Richard at any point, really. In fact, there's a point coming on later that, that we'll talk about that was just disgusting, frankly. Um, but yeah, And I think another, another, another good point that, that he does in this chapter is he kind of sets the scene for the mentality of the people in Louisiana. So really that they've kind of now been by the system that they're, that, they're, that they're living in, kind of being domesticated and, you know, very docile and, you know, taught to they have to work in the cotton fields and you can look at master in the eye and all of these type of notions which are totally against his way of thinking and of how he wants to um, be successful in life and proceed in life. So the whole environment that he finds himself in is very much one where someone who has pride and who has strength and confidence in himself is going to be beaten out of you. And I think that's now a reoccurring theme that we see during the early stages of his childhood where he's kind of rebelling against the system that he doesn't want to accept where he just needs to be this docile black boy who needs to do what, you know, in this case, remember this is 1942, early 1940s when he was born where he has to where he can't now have equal rights like a white person in in the community yeah and just to expand upon that point yeah so he was born on valentine's day in 1942 now he's basically a year older than my dad so i think the thing is is a lot of people and I say this with love, but a lot of white people in America seem to think that we're in a post-racial society um, thanks to Obama getting elected president and all this kind of bullshit and, and that racism is a thing of the past and what are black people complaining about and all these kind of things. Now, if you think about it, if your parent was 
and I'm talking through Venus and Serena's kind of point of view, your parent was born into such harsh racism and such, uh, I don't know, it's almost like the entire town is brainwashed and has been trodden down so long that no one's got any fight left in them, except almost just a couple of people effectively who think, no, you know what, I, I think there's something else better for me out there. And I, I just can't imagine even being born into that, you know, it's just how hard it must have been. And people think it's like past history. No, there are people who are still alive who went through this, you know. And and if you're talking about Ku Klux Klan members and stuff, there are still many, probably thousands of people out who are completely innocent and free walking around who probably killed a lot of black people and did unspeakable things and, and just walking around w without any kind of guilt associated to them whatsoever. They just got away scot-free for doing what they want. And so if you can remember that going through this book, Richard Williams really kind of makes you realize, because there were so many things, you know, there were things I thought I knew, but until someone actually puts it into, you know, puts it down in ink on paper and makes you realize through this pretty brilliant storytelling actually and brutal honesty then you don't realize these things you, you just don't you know so if i mean say for me you know i'm a brown guy in london well i'm, I'm not going to know everything about what the deep south was like in in the sort of you know middle of last century even if i think i know certain things this is someone who's actually saying well look this is explicitly what happened to me and even if certain bits are embellished you know i'm i'm willing to give a little bit of poetic license because there are probably other bits that were downplayed you know so um yeah i mean chapter three leading into that what you were saying before the the, the quote that i kind of picked out was <laughs> he, he literally says so this is on page 21 he says um he never understood why black people put their hope in God at all. And he just questions why religion was such a big part of things. And this is something that I actually talked to uh, Rochard about on one of the Public Enemy podcasts. I was kind of like, I was trying to go out of it in a circular way, but I was kind of like, why is Christianity so prevalent among black people in America? And he was kind of like, you know, I understand why you're asking that because it is quite a strange thing in certain ways. You know, if, if black people have been, you know, held down for so long, why would they associate with a white idol effectively? And he said, he said, the only thing is, is that when you've got no hope whatsoever, then you're better off clinging to something that is, has at least some sort of positive benefit. And if that's Christianity, that's better than drugs or alcohol or this or that, you know? And, and he said that that's literally all that some people had. So when he kind of reframed it like that, I was kind of like, yeah. So that's what Richard Williams is kind of saying in this book. You know, he was questioning why people even went to church, why people worshipped a white god or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So that that was one of the interesting things that I, I picked out from this chapter. And Shreveport sounds like a godforsaken place, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Pardon the pun, but it really does, you know. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know what you had to pick out on this chapter, or if you just want to expand on that point or anything like that. No, I mean, I, I, def I definitely agree in regards to that. And, and the, the thing that's interesting, I suppose, is, is as his journey eventually happens and goes along, he still, though, does find, I would say, faith and, um, you know, and religion in his life. So I think it's one of the pillars that he has is having faith in, 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 a, in a power that is greater than himself that allows him to go through all of these um, 
um, obstacles. But that probably happens later on in his life, in his like mid twenties and early thirties. Does he transition into into that? Yeah, and and the other point is is that he has an absent father as well, and um, you know it's not controversial to say that that is something that is prevalent within. Um, the african-american community in the united states that it's just a huge part of things and it has been and and and, you know even he sort of says that a lot of um a lot of the white people in the town would just rape young black girls and and they would get pregnant and have the children and And, and, and i think also i mean what was important here was he also allowed you to kind of have a a different perspective or different view if you're not used to that type of world of why certain criminal actions were taking place. So, I mean, just to kind of take a step back, but he gives the example of his dad being a sharecrop owner. Um, this, I mean, so his, his um, no, his um, grandfather being a sharecrop owner. And at the time, his father had um, had an agreement with the landowner that once he had paid him back $150, mm. the land would eventually be his. So after you know a given amount of years, him working extremely hard, um, him having paid more off than the $150, he finally gets the courage to go up to this landowner, this white master, to tell him, like, now can he sign off the deed? So he goes up, knocks at the door, and he's like, hey, hey can I have my deed now? And the, you know, the, the white... Um, landowner kind of looks at him and laughs and is like, come on, let's be serious. You've only paid off $50. Now get that, you know, get out of here and, and leave it alone. And that kind of injustice. And then he explains that that just broke his grandfather because his grandfather, like Richard Williams, was a man of honor who wanted to work hard, who wanted to be treated fair. But that level of injustice where you've worked hard, you've paid your dues, and someone can then still tell you, no, you haven't, and no, I will not give you this thing that you've worked so hard for, that's heartbreaking. And that really takes away from your spirit. And I think that's what we see with a lot of the characters in that that part of the um, of the city is them being broken down. And eventually that's even why Richard Williams has to flee um, Shreveport because he realizes if he stays there, he's either going to be killed or he's going to have his spirit broken down. Yeah, and um, and his grandfather was called Harold Metcalf and uh, he got screwed over by someone called Mr. Richmond um so it, that that is incredibly impactful and you can just imagine those those stories being handed down in an oral tradition and and making an impact on a young boy because you know you start to realize that there's not really much justice in your world so no matter what you do you know you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't basically and and that that shapes him in a lot of ways um, I think in uh, in chapter four, if you should we get to chapter four then? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So there's there's a hilarious little bit that I picked out where um, he's starting to. I say he's starting to get into trouble, but the thing is, he's one of these people that trouble seems to find him, and it's literally That's just an understatement. Yeah, and and it's just. <laughs> And it's just by the virtue of, like you said, you know, he's just trying to find fairness in in the world. And don't forget, he he's an absolute child at this point. He's not a teenager or anything. He's just a child. He's like six or five or something crazy. And and um, he 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 ends up getting into quite a few scrapes and stuff like that, and getting beaten up and beating up other kids and blah blah blah. And you know, and um, 
And then basically he, he runs home to his mum after after kind of like legging it from three racists again. And uh, his mum basically says, do you know what? I am prejudiced. I'm prejudiced against you because look at you. You're raggly. You don't have anything. You know, if I didn't buy you any clothes, you'd be naked. You've got no ambition. You've got no get up and go. You're not going to do anything with your life. And uh, and that has a real impact on him. And he kind of realizes, do you know what? Actually, that's kind of true. I need to have some sort of purpose in life. I need to get moving and get busy. And um, and and really, like that's kind of he takes that on board, and, and that spirit of enterprise comes about. <laughs> okay, he has to break the law repeatedly to do it. <laughs> but what other option does he have? You know, to be perfectly honest, if I if I was in that situation, I'd like to think that I would be like, you know, fuck it, you just got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Otherwise, we're going to die here. But then, but then I haven't, I haven't been oppressed for generations. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I, I don't know how I would be in that situation. It's easy to say, oh, I think I would act like that. But you just don't know. And and the great thing is that at a young age, he does rebel. And um, he he does what it takes to put food on his family's table. Yeah, and even the context of where he actually goes out into the woods hunting, whether it's like rabbits, bullfrogs, or or stealing chickens, and he gives that like quite powerful story where one time um, the sheriff um, catches him coming back from the woods where you're not apparently meant to to you know be killing any of the wildlife, and the sheriff then knocks him over the head and steals all the food that he had um, been able to retrieve for his family, and that's just giving you a context again of where even now where he's now had to go into the forest, you know, scavenge for the, for the food, kill the food himself, brings it back, and the sheriff now takes it off his hands for himself and beats him up for doing that. So all those kind of contexts where, where even the system around you is, is not playing fair, why should he? Yeah, exactly. And, and there, there are just so many instances, you know, we, we can't pick them all out because no. it, it might sound like we're just picking really you know, very isolated, insignificant moments from chapters, but there is just so much going on in every chapter, particularly in the first half of this book, that, and like really bad shit, you know, like almost every one of those bits that he's talking about is probably worse than 99.9% of my life, effectively, that kind of thing. So it's kind of like, it's it's almost overwhelming. So I, I don't, you know, I can't even imagine having been put in that in that situation, and it really shows his will, basically. You know, and and, and if you talk about nature versus nurture, something like those words that his mother spoke to him that does engender a spirit within him. Maybe he wasn't born that way. Maybe he just it is that environment that kind of created him effectively, and um, and that that's what he says in in the next chapter, in chapter five. He says, "In the worst of environments, I had the best upbringing." Which, which I thought was a fascinating point because then he's kind of like, well, you know, what doesn't, it's kind of, you know, in a very corny way, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But this is so far beyond that. This is like much more extreme than that. It, it is kind of like, it, it hardens every part of you. And he even says it earlier on in the book that, you know, he, he just struggles to find love because he's so hard inside and, and he's, he's lost so much, which we'll get onto the losses in the next chapter in chapter six. But sorry, you were going to make a point. No, I was just going to say, like, even in chapter five, where, I mean, and this is just to kind of give another idea of some of the things that were going on in the community, where, let's say, for him to be able to walk back home, you would still have to walk through a section of the white neighborhood. And what the um, 
what the white tenants would do is they would basically release their dogs that they would call, oh, you know, coon dogs. So basically yeah. dogs that would, you know, ravage black people or young black kids because they found it fun. And he explains one day of how against the system he was. So they've released these dogs on him. He breaks into one of these white owners' houses and he's there with like a, a 22 caliber rifle and a shotgun shooting down these dogs of these owners. That's how radical his level of thinking was and how he wasn't going to accept anyone really walking over him. And how old was he at that age when he's just shooting dogs? I, th I, th I think he was like maybe seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, just that scene. I, I mean, like, to be honest, there were moments in this book where I was sweating. Like, yeah, it, it yeah. literally felt like watching either a, a horror movie or an action movie. It was like, it was, it was giving me that chill. It was like a Tarantino movie, basically. Like, so, some of the scenes were that impactful where you couldn't make this stuff up, basically. You know? And he wasn't also, the way he writes... He doesn't write trying to portray himself as a hero. He explains his rage, but, and he doesn't justify it, but he's just telling you, that's how I felt. And you have to ask yourself, if you had, for example, a situation where you've put, you know, like um, five pounds in, in a man's hand, and he's now, along with everybody in that shop, beating the living shit out of you because you, as a black person, are not allowed to put money in his hand and you're a five-year-old kid. How do you think you're going to feel? How do you think you're going to grow up, you know? So now, you know, now when I'm reading this and then now I'm looking at some of the ways the media has portrayed Richard Williams, you're like, how else would you expect him to feel? You know, if for 30, 40 years of your life, maybe even 50 years of your life, all you've had is abuse, um, you know, had to fight for everything you have. And even now things that have belonged to you have now been taken away from you. How do you think that's going to let you um, leave you feel? Yeah, it's just amazing. This book is breathtaking. I, I'm going to say that again and again throughout this podcast. But um, yeah, I think you touched upon the cinematic feel of how this is written. But it doesn't feel cynical. It's not like he's trying to write a film script or anything. It's just descriptive and blunt. In Can I just say one thing? Yeah, yeah, go. Netflix needs to do... <laughs> no, literally, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I was thinking, like... I mean, just get this script into someone's hand. It's just incredible. And let, let, let's, say, let's say now you don't even do a Netflix. Let's say you do a movie, a two-hour movie, yeah? One hour, 55 minutes of the movie is just going to be Richard Williams. Five minutes will be Serena and Venus. Yeah, absolutely. That's how impactful his life is. Yeah. We don't, we don't need like an overarching thing of Venus and Serena. I don't care. Yeah. You can, you can hook them in, in the, in the marketing of it or something and just, you know, <laughs> splash their faces all over it and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But no, and couldn't care less. Once you've actually read the, read the book, then, then you'd understand why. Um, so, okay. So he's already like, like six or something dodged death about 5,000 times. And, um, and then, <laughs> and then we get to chapter six and, um, basically, he has one friend in the entire world, and uh, his name is Chili Bowl. And Chili Bowl stops him getting bullied at school, beaten, protects him, all this kind of stuff. And um, 
uh, Christ, it's actually very emotional. I have to say, like when I was rereading this, it so I was like, you know, it, uh, it's crazy. So because you have to, ta- you have to, you have to take into context as well that he's six years yeah. old at this time, yeah. and Chili Ball is eight. You know, and also I think I think the other aspect of it that really touched me was the fact that these was these were two young kids talking about their dreams. Um, Chili Ball was into reading, expanding his mind. Um, so it's almost for the first time Richard Williams is found like a kindred spirit, and he's now seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. So he's seeing someone who's also wants to think bigger than just this small city and wants to have bigger dreams. And then what happens, Jessel? Well, the other point is that. Richard Williams considers considers himself one of the poorest kids in in the whole of Shreveport, and then he goes to Chili Bowl's house. <laughs> like Chili Bowl is one of like what eight children or something like that. Uh, I think I think that literally every year a child is born, so it's like eight seven six five four three two one. That's how frequently it is, and um, and they're so poor that they have one knife, one fork, and one spoon to share amongst the whole family. That's how poor they are. And, and Williams is like, shit, I realized when I went home that we all had cutlery and, you know, we, okay, we've really struggled, but it was nothing as bad as what Chili Bowl had. And so they're getting closer and they're really, they really are best friends as, you know, like kids can only be and stuff. And, and then one day um, Chili Bowl is, you know, trying to cross a road or something, looking for discarded bottles that he'd get two cents for. And, uh, and a white lady just drove into him, just bang, uh, completely smashed into him, drove off, didn't even break, nothing like that. And um, and Chili Bowl just died right before Richard Williams's eyes. And um, and he was just absolutely devastated as you'd be. He just felt all alone in the world, and it's just it's just, it's just heartbreaking to read. I mean, you just. It, and there's just no justice. There's no like, of course, this white woman, nothing happened to her. You know, this is no, just, no, and, it's and, like the, yeah, the house yes. always wins in Shreveport. It's like a casino, you know? Yes. It's crazy. And, and I think the way he ends it, like with the quotes, like, I knew what God was trying to tell me. You were alone. And you just yeah. felt, it's like a weight just comes on your shoulders, you know, and it's like a dark cloud over you as you're reading it. Because you're there in the street with Richard looking down at his dead friend, Chili Bull just lying there, broken glass all over him. And you can literally visualize everything. You can literally visualize Richard Williams panting and his whole life flashing before his eyes, like what it could have been if Chili Bowl was still there, you know? And then I I think it's also quite potent, like where he's talking about the next day he goes to school and it's almost like the next day all the kids are making fun of the fact that Chili Bowl died and how he looked and all of this. So he's now back again into that darkness. He had that moment of light, where he thought things were getting better, he wasn't getting bullied. He was now finding like a you know someone that he could go on that journey with, and it's just snatched away from him. So that's and that's at six. So already now he's getting that armor over him, where he's like, look, only bad things seem to happen. I gotta be strong. I gotta be a warrior. I can't have emotions out here if I want to survive. What were you doing at six years old? <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, what were you doing at six? Years old? I remember being six. It was like the happiest times of my life, you know. I mean, I suppose in any context, anyone can go like, you know, you have your various different hardships here. Yeah? But when you read this book, like you said, I, do, I don't think you can really compare no matter how hard 
you might think your life has been. When you read Richard Williams's life story, the only thing that you can have is the utmost respect for him. You know, and I don't care if you're black, white, you know, Asian. Regardless, you can learn something from this book. Yeah, because it's it's a book about perseverance. It's a book about the fact that life is not easy, and and I think that's one of the things that he wants to highlight is is that if he's been able to come from where he's come from and been through all that he's been through, anybody can do it. It's not like that he's saying that he was a genius or that he no he basically everything that he got was through hard work. Yeah, although although in the next chapter, it's not. I mean. He, he he calls it confiscating goods. <laughs> it, it's stealing, clearly. But the thing is, again, if you're putting that situation where it's literally steal or die, yeah, or, or, you know, he's now the man of the household at the age of, like, seven or eight or something stupid, yeah, because his, his father's nowhere to be seen. And he's got, what, he's got, like, two sisters or something like that. And you know, it's his responsibility along with his mother's to put food on the table. So he does resort to theft and he just starts getting more and more elaborate with it. Um, and he has a couple of scrapes and he eventually ends up getting, uh, becoming friends with someone called Lil Man. And, um, and, and again, he comes close to finding proper friendship again. And, uh, and then what happens cage? So basically little man, um, was stealing from this um, member of the Ku Klux Klan. So this guy from the Ku Klux Klan, and now I think little man mustn't be more than like 11 or 12 years old, yeah? So he's captured by the Ku Klux Klan, yeah? And now they find his body eventually, and they find his body in, in the forest, hanged, and his hands chopped off. Yeah. Obviously, nothing ever happens to anybody who committed these crimes. Now, I know what people are going to say. Oh, but he was stealing. Okay, fine. In 2016, you steal. You're not going to go find someone's going to, you know, take a kid, hang them, and cut their hands off. No. And, and the quote that I sort of made notable about this chapter was, um, there was no formal investigation. No one was ever questioned. Nobody was able to prove who killed Lil Man because no one ever tried. And that's just how it was back then, you know, in that kind of situation. The Ku Klux Klan, <laughs> they had members of the police within them, let alone anything else. They just did what they wanted. They just ran wild and subjugated black people and raped them, killed them, mutilated them, ran them over and without anything happening to them whatsoever. So it's you can just imagine this hardening a young boy because you know his first friend just gets run over in a senseless act of you know, I don't know it's just crazy that's his best and I, and, it, and 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 I think it's kind of it, it's it's always quite interesting the way now like let's say now when the media portray Richard Williams and they'll kind of like sometimes you know put him as this disgruntled or unhappy um, black man yeah. If you've been through his life and how he's acting now, that's a very happy person because trust me, yeah, anybody else, like I have friends who are in the special forces, yeah, who have been to Afghanistan and have been to Iraq, yeah, and they have seen some horrific things. Richard Williams has been through more, I would say, in some cases, traumatic experiences 
than soldiers who have actually been to war. That's how horrible and terrible some of the things that have happened in his lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just crazy. And this is within America, the land of the free. Um, moving on to the next chapter, then uh, I think, <laughs> it, again, just... I don't know. It's just this this bit is actually really upsetting, I have to say. I just um so so basically there is um there's someone that he he kind of meets called Mr. Percy. And he was an old black man named Mr. Percy. Now, everyone just called him that. He was tall about maybe 50 years old or so. Now, he's <laughs> I'm just going I'm just going to read a bit of this. So basically, according to Mr. Percy, his left arm had been severed at the elbow years before by five white men in a pickup who jumped him coming home from the Fish Creek. They punched him in the stomach and pushed him on the ground. Four of them held his hands and legs. The fifth man took a blade and sawed his arm off at the elbow. He told the story like it was just matter of fact, strangely without anger or resentment. Nor did he say one derogatory word about the men who harmed him. I cried uncontrollably, lost in pity and sorry for him. Why did they cut your arm off, Mr. Percy? Them old hunters wouldn't feed their dogs for 10, 11, 12 days. Then they would run them and work them real hard. By then they'd be starving. So the white men made a game out of finding Negroes and cutting off parts of their bodies and feeding them to the dogs. It took me a long time to sleep digesting that. I'm just reading that and I feel sick. I, I, I fucking and, feel and, sick. And, 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 and there were moments in this book, well, many moments in this book, where the rage that he felt got transmitted to you. Because Look, I, I'm going to say this right it, now. I'm going to say this right now, yeah. I was like... Even if I was a white person reading this, I'd be reading this thinking, fuck white people. I honestly would. It, that's, <laughs> I'd just be like, you know what? Fuck white people. I would. I'd yeah, be reading yeah. this. Yeah. There are just yeah. so many moments in, in this. You're just like, and yeah. I'm, I'm not saying fuck all white people, you know, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. But listen, if you, just, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like reading that just... Just listen to the words that I just said. Just rewind it like a minute and listen again. And and just this is the kind of injustice that happens so regularly that it, and it's like how how could I don't know. Oh, sorry, man. Do you know what? Just I need to take a pause. You go. You go. No, and 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 I, I suppose the context that you also have to look at it is as a human being. Yeah, how can you do that to another person? You know, it's 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 different if it's in a situation of war or, 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 or whatnot. But this is literally for no reason other than this is a game. It's entertainment. And you're entertainment. And you're looking at this black person as he is not a real living human being. He's an animal. I mean, they wouldn't even do that to an animal. Probably, and that's the crazy thing, is probably if they had caught someone chopping off a dog's um, leg they'll probably arrest him and put him in prison at that time. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. But if you did it to a black person, Hey, it's okay, man. No problem. It's just, uh, and, and I think, and I think, and I think what was, what struck me so much with this story was, is that now 
he's given context to how he sees the world. Now he's given context to all the times I've seen him on the news and he's now talking and it's almost like those, you know, media or the journalists are kind of like smirking or laughing like, oh, look at this crazy old man. No, you need to respect this person. This person has been through a lot of shit to be where he is today. This guy has seen a lot of things, horrific things, experienced a lot of horrific things and still had the courage to, you know, sit down and talk with you in a politeful and respectful way. Now, someone else did that to me, to be honest. I don't know if I could forgive. Yeah, I couldn't fucking forgive them. No, no I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> no I couldn't. No. To be honest. No. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't. I'd want revenge, to be perfectly honest. Yes. I would. Yes. And, and I tell you what, Richard Williams gets revenge more than once in this book. And he says it explicitly. <laughs> he's not even doesn't he give this guy gives the least amount of fucks i've ever (laughs) my question my only question is there were a couple times in the book just and i just want to know if you felt the same way where richard williams might have caught a couple bodies but he didn't want to admit them in the book (laughs) (laughs) like i'm just being honest there was a couple times i'm like you shot that person there didn't you (laughs) Like, it wouldn't surprise me yeah you're so sp- i was literally gonna say that in this podcast i was gonna be like do you know what people are like complaining that he might have embellished stuff i'm sitting there thinking i'm wondering what he left out because there are times when i'm like he fucking killed someone didn't he really blatant there's, there's even we'll, we'll get to there's a passage coming up in the next chapter in chapter 10 where where i'm like <laughs> yeah right okay anyway anyway so chapter nine now this is this is another one that there are so many like heart wrenching moments in this book that that stories relate to him. I used the phrase oral tradition before, and because that's important. The thing is, is that in that community, you know, a lot of people weren't educated or, or were you know prevented from being educated, and oral tradition is such an important part of Black America. You know from you know, being grabbed and transported across the Atlantic Ocean to, um, you know, being slaves to being, you know, not allowed to drinking from the, not allowed to drink from the same fountain and all this kind of stuff. A lot of these stories weren't written down, but they were handed down from generation to generation anyway. And, um, and so the next, the next chapter, you have someone who's a preacher called Mr. Beaumont and, he relates this, um, this, so he was already in his 70s at this kind of point, and, um, and Williams is kind of having a crisis of, I say crisis of faith, but he's just, you know, he's getting it from all sides at this point, and he's still very young. So Mr. Beaumont um, ends up telling him the story of what happened and uh, to him, and basically he, he owned some land, he had a mule and stuff like that, he was doing really well for himself, and uh, and and you know, his white neighbor who was a farmer took very badly to this. And, um, and in the end, and you know what, it, oh, go on, you know sorry. what I, you know, I, I would say even with the story, it, what was even really interesting, it wasn't even so much that his white neighbor took badly. It's his white neighbors, white friends took badly that a black man had more than him. And I think that's yeah, kind of like yeah, what yeah. seeped into his white neighbor was every time his white friends would come around and they would be like, how is it possible that your neighbor who's black has a mule? How is it possible that your neighbor who's black has this land? 
And I think that's what ate, ate at him. And because remember at, at the start, he was saying Mr. Boomer and this guy used to get on really well. Yeah. Until Mr. Boomer started having maybe a bit more than him. And then he couldn't take it anymore, especially when his friends would come around. Yeah. I think that's actually the, probably the, the most crucial point, to be honest. And um, so anyway, Mr. Beaumont has has this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And um, they start ganging up on him. The Ku Klux Klan get involved. He finds a burning cross outside his house. And, uh, and then one night they really come for him. And luckily his wife and kids get out. Um, and then they beat him senseless and stuff. And they, they effectively, they just make him sign over his land for nothing, for a nickel. And all this land that he's worked hard to, to own and everything, then they just take it for nothing. And um, it's just the injustice of that, you know. And this was, again, so commonplace. They just, they, they had, there was such a low opinion of black people with so many whites, especially in that area, that the thought of them wanting anything was almost treated like a disease that you had to, you know, cure them of or, or just beat out of them and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of why do you even consider yourself human enough to want to own land? You know, no, this is mine now. And there's nothing you can do about it. And and, and yes. Williams, Williams is just sitting there soaking this up and, and realizes, do you know what? I need to get the fuck out of this place. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's, it's such... I mean, it was, it's, it's another element. Like, I mean, we're only into chapter nine and the emotional, the emotional pain you're kind of already feeling at this point is like, damn, <laughs> like, I mean, where's the justice? You know, you're kind of like looking around like, you know, and, and obviously it's not a fairy tale. This ain't a Disney story. So there is, I mean, and now you have to think on a scale, how many other people have been through these type of situations yeah. that you know, you're never going to hear about, yeah. you know? This is now a story of someone who now has had success, has had daughters that have gone on to do great things. Yeah. But how many other Mr. Williams are there that you're never going to hear their stories? Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of the kind of things is this, you know, Mr. Beaumont is saying that they kept trying to take away his manhood, you know, and and he just said, do you know what? The, after a while, they, it's like they almost succeed. But no, I am a man. I'm still here. I've rebuilt my life. You know, no matter what they did to me, I'm still here. And and that's the kind of attitude that that Williams takes on. And and the last thing in this chapter that Beaumont says is, Richard, in my heart, I know God's got something special for you to do, but you can't get it done here. Get out of here while you can. God will make a way. Ain't nothing for you here, son. Nothing at all. And so. You know, Williams realizes, look, I just have to get out by hook or by crook. I got to do it. So he um, he's got an uncle, his mother's brother, called uh, Uncle Roman Metcalf, who lives in Chicago. So basically, um, the long and the short of it is, he gets there. He gets to Chicago. He kind of rides freight trains, which is just unbelievable. Um, but <laughs> there, there there are some amazing kind of over the next couple of chapters you know he, he floats the idea with his mother saying look what do you think if i move to chicago and she she's just like no no you're not going you know and and he, he it's funny because you know he, he does talk about his mother that she's the person he respects most in this world but he also and, and i love this he also objectively looks at her and says do you know what she just 
does not realize certain things. She just doesn't get certain things because how could she? She's just been so brainwashed by everything around her and so downtrodden in certain ways that she she just cannot comprehend wanting me wanting to make a better life for myself and everyone else and leaving. Yeah, and, and I agree. And almost it's almost like also a defense mechanism because you don't have any examples of people actually having been successful the way that Richard Williams wants to do it. So she's almost trying to tell her son, like, look, no, if you want to survive and not get killed, you're going to have to play the good Negro, basically. And he's going, no. And, and also I think the, the setting of the scene, how he describes his uncle initially, so he's like this young, good-looking, flashy guy from Chicago that comes back to Louisiana. So you'd always see his uncle coming back to Louisiana. So now he's kind of set that as, as a, you know, as kind of like an idol of, I want to be like this guy. So eventually, yes, as, as you described, he jumps to Chicago. But then what he kind of realizes is the reality of things is Chicago is just another prison, you know, in a different shape and form. It's an illusion that they've kind of... Well, wait, 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 wait. You're jumping. I'm jumping, I'm, I'm jumping jump, the gun. I'm jump, jumping the gun. Jumping. Okay, sorry. Because <laughs> there, is, there is quite possibly the craziest story of the whole book in this chapter. So... Is it in chapter 10? It is in chapter... You see, this is the thing. This is only in chapter 10. So basically... <laughs> and you're laughing because you know the story I'm about to tell. So, um, so basically, he... He's still in he's still in Shreveport at this time, but Uncle Roman has has come to visit, and uh, he gets beaten up by the police. Blah 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 blah, and then somehow Uncle Roman gets him out of jail, and he says to Richard, he says, Richard, seeing how the police felt about you, I think you should make plans to get out of town sooner rather than later. I agreed with Uncle Roman. I made plans. So for the next few months, Richard Williams is kind of like you know he keeps his head down and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> and um, before he leaves. In what is one of the greatest acts of revenge I've ever heard in my life, he decides to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, by by basically um, by basically stealing one of the the white outfits and painting his hands white because his face doesn't matter because you can't see faces. But he he still does his um his eyelids and underneath his uh yeah his eye yeah. bags and all that and he's got he's got his little sisters experimenting with makeup night after night on his hands he doesn't tell them why <laughs> and and uh, so so anyway right so basically manages to get the uh, manages to get the outfit and um and then he he rides on his bike to uh <laughs> to like the, where the kkk are yeah, gets out, you know, blah, puts it on, all that kind of stuff. And the first thing that happens before he even gets to the meeting is that the police roll up on him and he's like, shit. And uh, and <laughs> so he's expecting it all to just collapse within, you know, minutes. And the police just roll down the window and say, uh, you know, eh, the boys are all around the corner. Go on, <laughs> have fun, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> They've already caught themselves a black man. <laughs> yeah. So he, say, he says, I stood there open mouth, open mouth. It was the acid test. It was incredible. The police thought I was clan. So anyway, he goes around the corner. And the first thing that happens is that they've got this black kid who's maybe like 17 or something. And they're going to, they're probably going to kill him that night. Now, 
they they uh, the clan don't realize who Richard Williams is. They say, just get in the truck. Let's all go. Yeah. So they all get in the truck with this black kid, r- drive out into the middle of the woods, and um, and then they stop. And uh, th- so he gets handed a rifle or whatever like that <laughs> to shoot. Yeah, the so guy they, in the safe. Yeah, so this is, listen, if you shoot him right between the eyes, it'll burst his head wide open. Yeah, so they're telling Richard Williams to shoot. And everyone's laughing, ha, 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 ha. And so um, Williams points the barrel towards the sky, lets off two rounds, and then points the rifle at the clan. Let the boy go, I ordered. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil everything, but, but that's the... It, it's absolutely unbelievable. It like... This is one of those things where even if it is embellished, I just couldn't care less. It just adds so much to the book. And you're just like, this guy <laughs> is one of the craziest motherfuckers. I said it with all respect, yeah. But one of the craziest motherfuckers I've <laughs> ever, ever heard of in my entire life. And this is a, a age God knows what. Like, I don't know, he's probably like a 17 or something at this stage. I was so clapping. It, <laughs> I, I, I stood up. I was clapping. And I was like, hell motherfucking yeah. You yeah. know? I can't lie. At one point, I was like, squeeze the trigger. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Are you kidding me? I was like, do it. I can't lie. I was like, shoot them. Plead in the, the fifth. Face. Plead the fifth. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> they were going to kill the black guy anyway. So, you know, but then obviously, at least for the book, he didn't admit to... Uh, this is a point where the, where the legal team of publishing probably stepped in and be like, you can't... <laughs> You can't fucking can't admit to this. kill people. You can't do that. You can't do it. Um, so, so listen. Uh, <laughs> I, this is one of those points, like we alluded to before, that it would not surprise me. It's written, you know, written beautifully. He doesn't kill these people in the end, yeah. But it, it would his not conscience comes in. He, yeah. he realizes that blah, blah, he wouldn't blah. be able to live with himself. Blah blah blah. Mm. <laughs> I think mm. he'd live with himself just fine, <laughs> exactly to be perfect. Fine. I think he would live with himself just fine. And I wouldn't blame him. Yeah. <sighs> Gosh, a bit out of breath after that one. Right, so, next chapter, he does actually get to uh, Chicago. He rides the freight trains, goes to live with Uncle Roman. So this is like six months after. And um, so, yeah, so he's actually 18 years old. It's a cold December morning in 1960. He's 18 years old. And... Yeah, so then he makes his way to Chicago to live with Uncle Roman. Now, what do you remember from this part? Okay, now I think this is now probably because up to now, I mean, everyone who's been listening in has probably been assumed. I mean, it's it's been quite, let's say, action-packed. But this is now the part where we start to see really a different side of Richard in terms of how he's going to plan his life. So, for example, every morning I think he wakes up around 3.30 a.m. and he's reading. You know, he's trying to empower himself. He's trying to build his mind. He's trying to visualize where he wants to go. As soon as he comes back in the evening from having worked with his um, uncle on the um, uh, as, as a foreman, right? Yeah, construction. Yeah, Good, yeah, on a construction site, he's again reading. So I think he's now already putting into context the fact that I mean, he's what eighteen, eighteen, nineteen. He's disciplined. He realizes he needs to gain knowledge of self in order for him to go to where he wants to go in life yeah and i think the fascinating bit about this chapter is that like you say you know he's starting to really um 
lay the foundations. Yeah, yeah, lay the foundations in more ways than one. But the, the interesting thing is that so it's it's on cha- on page ninety six and um, and so you know the, his his uh, cousins are saying, oh my god, you know what they beat you up for reading where you were, and he was like, yeah, 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 and so. Um, he sees this flicker across Uncle Roman's face because he says, no, I want to be a businessman. I'm going to make a difference in this world. This is Richard, Richard saying that. And, and he sees this flicker across Uncle Roman's face saying, well, it's all well and good to have something you want to do, but shouldn't, you, know, you shouldn't give up a good job whilst you're doing it. Anyway, they have a bit of a back and forth and, and you know, a difference of opinion and stuff. That's when it hit me, the look in his eyes. I understood it. I had seen it all my life. It was fear. Fear of getting ahead, fear of being equal. Uncle Roman accepted the idea he could never have as much as white people. Looking at his apartment, his life, it all seemed okay, but compared to what? And so, you know, he's saying that everything's relative. And then he starts to look more closely at at Uncle Roman's life and and see, well, okay, the Cadillac that he drives around in barely makes it each trip. You know, it's not that shiny thing that he thought that he, you know, when, when he pulls up in Shreveport, yeah, of course it looks great because comparative to that environment it's wonderful but once he gets into chicago it's like you were saying before you know is was chicago any better no you know okay he had access to libraries but it was still you know there were still black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods if you walked through a white neighborhood they they wanted to know why the fuck you were walking through there people still called you the n-word this this that all this kind of stuff so he realized that look this is how it is for black people it's just a different environment it's just a different prison effectively and I think it also kind of put into context, like, because I was initially thinking, like, why would Uncle Roman want to come back to, to Shreveport? And then I realized it's because when he comes back, the black people there are looking up to him. So even though he knows in Chicago he's kind of living a lie, yeah, but when he comes back to his old hood and, or, or, you know, environment, he feels like he's actually done something with his life. And I think now for Richard... That was what frightened him was he realized that all this time he had been looking up to Uncle Roman. It was actually just an illusion. And Uncle Roman wasn't the person that he really believed him to be, you know. And, yeah. and, and, he, di- and he didn't want to fall into that trap, neither. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that actually a lot of people could probably identify with in different ways. Even now, even yeah. now, in, in, yeah. in, in, indeed. And, and, I think, and I think the key thing for him was... He wanted to be successful whether he was white or black. So it wasn't just to be in comparison to I'm living in the ghetto and in comparison to my five neighbors, I'm doing okay. No, he wants to have the same rights, the same opportunities as anyone else, you know. And I think that's what was kind of happening with the environment. And I think it's a powerful way of looking at it in that context, in that era and time, how they were kind of still able to keep black people trapped by giving them false hope like hey you're doing pretty well for yourself just don't look across the street or across the <laughs> the city where the other white people are actually really doing well you know or even in comparison to, to the white people who are doing the worst you are still not even touching them and you're doing really well in in, in commerce as a black person yeah and and there's there's another there's just a hilarious story from this chapter as well. It's just unbelievable the shit this guy does. So basically, he, he'd learned to play golf when uh, he was oh, in shit. Shreveport. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm about to say. <laughs> the 
this motherfucker right here. So, <laughs> so um, he'd learned to play golf when he was in Shreveport. So, in, but in Chicago, he couldn't play on the city courts, uh, on the city courses rather. So he used to borrow a friend's clubs and go to a nearby park to hit balls. Now, um, there was this well-dressed white man who, uh, who approached him and had a really nice car, this convertible, a Buick Roadmaster. And um, so anyway, the, the guy says to him, oh, you play golf? Yeah, I used to play golf. Are you any good? It depends on how you mean that. Oh, you think you can beat me? I laughed. Oh, yeah, it would be too easy, man. It made him mad. No, you can't, he insisted. I waved him off. He said, I tell you what, if you don't beat me, I'm going to whip your ass. I said, well, okay, but if I beat you, I'll whip your ass. <laughs> His face got all steely hard. It'll never happen. Mind you, this is the 60s, yeah, in Chicago, and he's saying this to a white man. Like, let's just put that into context. Yeah. So, anyway, basically, he, they, they, they just had a, a competition. And um, so Williams goes first, right? So, so you know, Williams is, has this little, little moment where he's like, shit, okay, have I gone a bit too far here? This guy's big enough and crazy enough to try to beat me up. Anyway, he tees up a ball and hits it a mile. It soared straight into the sky, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and this guy's jaw just dropped and he starts trying to back down, basically. And uh, <laughs> I says, oh, maybe this isn't a good idea. So <laughs> Williams starts saying to the, to the white guy, well, I'll tell you what, boy, now you better hit that ball or I'm going to whoop your ass. <laughs> and, and, then, and then basically, long, long to the street, I grabbed him, hit him, knocked him hard to the ground and I took his car. I drove it all around town. I was completely relaxed about the whole thing. <laughs> so he just steals this guy's car, starts driving it around the whole of fucking Chicago. Eventually, I think it's like the next day or something, the police, like, he told his Uncle Roman, and his Uncle Roman's like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, he's, he's like get out of here, man. Like, don't bring the car around. Yo, man, like, like I said... Like this is chapter eleven. We're halfway through the book. Like, <laughs> like no, let's just no. We just got to talk about this, man. Because I, I mean, go, go, go. I was just like, are you serious? Like literally, it. I mean, come on, Jesso. When you read this, yeah, already by now, think of all the stories we've already told you over the last one hour, yeah, and now this. <sighs> I just, oh man, words escape me. <laughs> Like, one of these stories are this type of stories that you'd be telling your grandkids, you know, for years on and on. He has, like, literally a thousand, a thousand of these type of stories, man. Believe it or not, the next chapter has even crazier shit. <laughs> That's what you just look at this book and you're like, how is it the next chapter has a crazier story than this golf fucking one? It's just, it's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um... Okay, so he just nicks the guy's car. The police eventually pull him over and say, like, I think you need to give the car back. <laughs> they didn't even arrest him or anything. <laughs> um, so, okay, so we're, we're at chapter 12. We're, not, we're literally not quite at the halfway point in this book yet. And, and, and yeah, so like Cage says, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Now, now in this section, um, he's starting to kind of, you know, do quite well at work and stuff like that. And um, he, he's kind of, he's trying to get promotions and stuff like that. And, um, 
and then he realizes that okay it's not quite going to happen there's there's a real glass ceiling there for sure as it was for you know all black people around that era and and, and just to put into context so now he's actually taking classes bookkeeping he's doing accounting he's he's now so he's just entered a job and i think within the first 9 months of that job he's been promoted twice you know so they're really looking at him like yo this guy is you know he's an incredible worker he's doing well um you know you know he, he he's someone that 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 they that everyone all the other black workers are like he's working way too hard you know everyone's worried in in regards to that so i suppose one day now he goes to his boss asking if he can play a more important role and then what what happens um just over here so um the, the- you know the the boss calls him a bozo and basically um he he's just really pissed off he realizes that nothing's going to happen here uh, and even though the you know williams is top of his class in bookkeeping and all this kind of stuff and like excelling at maths and everything like that and it's it's amazing i have to say it's absolutely amazing so then he ends up just walking home that afternoon cuz he's really pissed off and um he, he ends up walking through this this white neighborhood and the police just rock up so um so the police the policeman says look you know what the fuck are you doing here get out blah 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 are you from around here you better go back to louisiana you know all that kind of stuff and williams has just had enough that day yeah he's just absolute this is the straw that broke the camel's back and um <laughs> so so basically williams just says look you know just leave me alone I'm I'm just literally walking I'm not doing anything yet. And and this escalates it escalates and this this goes on for quite a while listen. So um eventually push comes to shove and um and the officer just you know starts beating him and stuff like that. And uh, he goes to jail. But in the process Williams is like okay either you're going to kill me or I'm going to kill you. I <laughs> I I mean to be honest this part of the story I mean it it impacted me in so many ways because I think this is a clear example of courage. This is Martin Luther King level courage, you know. Um, and in a way, it's also an example of what happens when you're just now your spirit's basically also broken, and you really have no will anymore to live because you're like, look, I'm a man. I'm working so hard to trying to be something. I demand respect from you. You know, you're the system and you're abusing your power. I refuse to allow you to have power over me anymore, even if it means you fucking killing me. You know, and now when you come across with someone with that level of conviction and in a way madness because he doesn't give a fuck anymore whether you shoot him or not, it then I mean he he basically shows that he kind of like takes back that power. That's been snatched away from him. Yeah, and 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 you know what? Just to clarify to the listener, I'm I'm laughing at points because it, it's just the, the the ridiculousness of the situations that it's it's unbelievable. I mean, because literally, yeah, it's what just happens, unbelievable. That's why I'm laughing. I'm not laughing because this is hilariously funny. No, of course no. not. When I was reading it, my heart was in my mouth. But yeah. just reading it again and doing this podcast, I'm just laughing because it's it's partially nervous laughter because I think I would just be so scared of this guy in real life. But also. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's just, it's just it's just laughter at like the the incredulity of the situation where it's just 
this this guy has balls so fucking big it's just unbelievable and, yeah, and for yeah, him to yeah. he's just now he's just straight up challenging the cops who could just take him out at a moment's notice and, and and that still happens i mean jesus of course it's still happening every day you know and that's 1960s with no body cams no cameras nothing so basically for a cop to kill you would mean nothing back then they could get away with it. And to be honest, in this case, they, in some situations, they could have almost said they were justified in, in this case. I mean, it would be totally wrong, but they could have found a, an excuse where they would have gotten away with it, no issue. Because basically now, the second time after he's... Um, so, so basically, as Jesso was explaining, he goes to this white neighborhood, he, he, he confronts the cop, he's knocked out, he's sent to prison. Two days later, he leaves the prison decides he wants to go back to the same neighborhood and find that same cop and confront him again. This time when he confronts him, the cop is with um, some other cops. Once again, they ask him what's he doing there. He says he doesn't want to go anywhere. They knock him out again, send him back again to prison. He's released from prison, third time. Now who in their right mind, after getting the shit kicked out of them, would go back to the same neighborhood looking for the same cop? So he goes back to the same neighborhood, finds the same cop now, who this time is by himself, and he confronts him. Now, obviously, at this point, the cop is like, something ain't quite right with this guy, because clearly this guy is not sane. Yeah? So he basically calls him a nigger, and he tells him, look, fuck out of here. Richard Williams insists, and he goes, no, my name is Mr. Williams. I demand you call me that. The cop still, fuck out of here, nigger. I ain't going to do anything. Um, I'm not going to call you that. But now the cop is starting to get a bit frightened. And basically, um, Richard Williams tells him, look, either you shoot me and kill me or I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Now the cop goes, look, Mr. Williams, (laughs) you know, I don't want any trouble. (laughs) Yeah. So now he's actually now, you know, giving him his respect. I don't want any trouble. Please just get the fuck out of here. Richard Williams isn't content with that. He goes, either you kill me or I'm going to kill you. The cop has a gun on him. What does he do? He jumps in the car and drives the fuck off. At this point in the book, I'm like, yo. <laughs> I'm like, fuck Rocky. <laughs> you know, fuck Rambo. <laughs> Any superhero you might think of. Yeah. <laughs> this is a man's man. Like, you just got to clap and go like, damn. Like, it's just crazy. It's I don't crazy. know many people in this world who would have the guts to do that. So, listen, you've been held up by the police before, haven't you? Yes. Beat down, see my dad beat down, dragged from his house, beat down as well. At gunpoint as well, right? Yes, at gunpoint. So and trust me, I, <laughs> and I was innocent. I had done nothing at this, to be honest. Nothing. I literally just, you know, nothing. So I, I, I know that feeling of being oppressed, feeling powerless, feeling like there's nothing you can do. Because obviously this is a figure of authority. Yeah. So, I mean, when you were reading this, did it really bring back things for you? It did. It did. Um, the only difference is, is I never ran up on the cops. The cops <laughs> ran up on me. <laughs> 
I'm not that crazy. Like, I was minding my own business and the cops quit, came and found me. And apparently I fit the description of someone who had committed a crime as is usually the, um, is usually how they, how they phrase those situations. Yeah. So th- that's what was, that was what was incredible and crazy about the story. And not once. You could understand if you had done it once, right? Yeah. But he did it three times. And I think that, that level of, like, that level of faith in himself, conviction, yeah? No wonder his, um, I mean, he's had the results like that in life. I don't think there are many people who have that level of, um, of balls. Because literally in this book, he goes through maybe, I would say, 150 beatdowns. 150 times him losing a fight extremely badly. Teeth knocked out, nose broken, ribs cracked. And he didn't necessarily have to be in that situation. He could have run off. He could have been a coward or, you know, he could have found a way to defuse the situation. But he's like on some, like literally I felt like in some situations he was kamikaze. Yeah, I think so. And and <clears throat> an interesting thing about the hard copy of this book right now at this point. So when he the, literally the page that he's saying, no, you're going to call me Mr. Yeah. yeah. He's telling the fucking cop, you're going to call me Mr. I own America. You're going to call me Mr. <laughs> All this shit. Yeah. It literally says I own America. <laughs> Who says I own America? There's even a Slick Rick Kong song called I Own America. <laughs> which is which is a great song, by oh, the way. I love that. <laughs> anyway, so at this this point in the hard copy book, um there's uh there's one, two, three, four pages of uh coloured photographs. So it's basically like an insert into the middle of this book. And uh, and the first one is Julia Metcalf Williams, my greatest hero, and it's a photo of his mum just sitting on a on a on a stoop, and um, it, it it's brilliant. Actually, I have to say it's absolutely brilliant because you're reading this book, you're just like, what the fuck, what the fuck, oh my god, oh my god, and then suddenly, when he has this kind of like this incredible victory and he's saying the taste of victory was so sweet, it was one of the most important days of my life, a source of pride forever. And then it shows this picture of his mother. And it's just amazing. It's absolutely brilliant. And then there's this kind of like um, ones of Venus and Serena and uh, like happier times and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But the one of his mum opposite that, that police incident is just genius. You know, the publishers definitely get, get a, a big thumbs up for that. Um, so, so. And, 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 and to be honest, I mean, incredible moments in the book. But to me, this was like probably one of the the, the climax moments. Like, like, yeah, yeah. like in the movie, this is that part in the movie where you're just like, you know, you're up in your seat. You're everyone's giving each other high fives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it was it was really that type of moment. Yeah, I agree. And and it's almost like at that moment, you know, he recognizes it as well. It's like, you know, in the Matrix when Neo realizes he's the one yes. And, yes. and everything's just unlocked. And it's like, hang on, you know, I don't have to put up with this shit if I'm crazy enough. You know, I can just, the world is mine. The world is mine. Or, so, or, or Rocky or Rocky in round 10 where he can't see through his eyes and, yeah. and he gets back up. And yeah, it, it, it was that moment. 
<laughs> but I think the difference is, is that, okay, first of all, that's fiction, fine, and this is yes. not. But, you know, Rocky is just about, it's just about that physical brutality and that sheer strength of will. And The Matrix is, you know, f- fuck those. But <laughs> that's like a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah, yeah. But this, this, is, this is different. This is still a young man, a very young man, you know, yeah. who, um, like university age, basically, uh, who's going through all this shit in this landscape and then suddenly realizes that, okay, if I just push back hard enough, there's a chance that I can get away with this and I can just unlock and do what I want. And his ambition suddenly grows just, you know, unlimited scope, you know? So, um, so then he kind of jumps forward a bit in chapter 14, like a few years, he's saying the mid sixties now and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's talking about the, what it's like around it. And, you know, most people would kind of be aware of what that kind of era is like in America. And finally, you know, black people are really pulling together and starting to fight the injustices as a whole. You know, you've got Martin Luther King and you've got Malcolm X. So, okay, they might be diametrically opposed in certain ways, but, you know, (laughs) I... And, you know, you've got got Muhammad Ali and all all these, like, you know, strong black figures where now that sense of pride in the black community is really starting to, to, um, to be showcased, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, he kind of mentions at the beginning of this chapter about Martin Luther King and stuff. And, you know, if there's ever someone that's going to just identify with Malcolm X a bit more than Martin Luther King, it's probably Richard Williams, you know? Um, but anyway, so so he's he starts detailing more about his business ventures, and um, and at this point he's in Compton, by the way, right? He's 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 now moved over to LA. In chapter oh, fourteen, I think. has he? Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've just I'm so caught up with things. That it's just, it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? You're completely right. Yep. He's he's gone to LA. I missed that bit. Yeah. So anyway, so he's in LA, and um, and then he starts kind of like in a car wash venture effectively and um so i think he's working in a car wash and he ends up it's basically like the storyline to breaking bad in certain ways uh with the whole <laughs> car wash thing <laughs> it's kind of bizarre indeed, indeed. yeah um uh, ends up kind of overtaking it because the guy in charge has got this drug habit and stuff like that so i think he basically fucks the guy over like really cleverly it's, it's really it's really genial and um and then it, you know, he, he kind of like has various other ventures, there's data processing. And then like, I think it, he worked at a bank as well for a while and stuff like that. Yeah. But, uh, and and but, then he owned his, his own um, cleaning business. Yeah. Maintenance company and stuff like yeah. that. And, and then, then he, he had like security guards and all this kind of stuff. Right. But yeah, but I think, yeah. So he owns his own cleaning business. He's now made a lot of um, money. He ha- I mean, a reasonable amount of money. He has several houses. But I still think within himself, um, he's not achieving the goals that he wants to within the time frame that he that he um, expected. Is is it at this point that he's he started giving away all of his um, all all his stuff, right? Yeah, I think so. And um, and then. And, then basically, and basically it, wants to die. Basically, you know, he's, he's going on that path of self-destruction until once again. And, and this was the thing that I loved um, with this chapter. And the fact that the previous chapter, he had explained how he had come face to face with a cop and it had empowered him. 
and made him now, you know, refine himself. And in this chapter, it's again a cop, but that actually now allows him to let go of that anger and self hatred that he's developed of having been beaten down so many times. Like where now after he's given, um, we're basically stopped by the cop. Yeah. And he gives the cop again, like an extreme amount of attitude. And the cop basically tells him like, look, if you think I'm going to, if you want me to kill you, I'm not going to kill you. Yeah. And it kind of makes Richard Williams think what exactly is he doing here? And that he needs to be, you know, he needs to appreciate his life and not be trying to throw it away where he was basically self-sabotaging himself at this stage just because he had so much rage, so much hatred against the system, which he felt was just completely rigged and biased and unfair, which it was. Yeah, those are great points. And that's, yeah, that is key to this chapter effectively. You know, I think he is spiraling and you do reach a point because he, he's not married at, at any point. And he says he kind, of, he kind of has trouble with relationships because, you know, for various reasons, whether it's trust issues or, you know, the amount that he's been hurt in the past and stuff like that. Um, but I think he's kind of a little bit rudderless, I have to say, at this point. Like, you, if you're looking at it objectively, and, and that's obviously how it's supposed to come across in the book, that, yeah, he's making great moves. He's got this ambition. He's got this drive. He's unlocking the key to certain areas, but he's he is a bit rudderless. It's not for any particular reason, which is why he kind of, you know, goes up, down, up, down. And then, and then like you said, you know, he's really kind of looking deep into his soul at this point, isn't he? Yeah, and just to clarify, so he's now made... He's made his money, he's, he's created his businesses. He has, I think, about three houses and he starts giving away his money. He starts giving away his businesses. So at this point, he's 27 years old and he's kind of set it in his mind that he's yeah. going to die at 28. Okay. So he's like, fuck it, I don't need any of this shit. So he just starts giving everything away. So for all those years that he's been building up until he's down to like one tennis shoe and that's it. And that's when he meets this police officer who he basically is trying to get this police officer to kill him. Yeah, subconsciously without him realizing it. And by the police officer telling him like, look, I'm not going to do what you want me to do and kill you. So maybe he meets the one good police officer at that point. Yeah, who actually and he then says that police officer saved his life, which is kind of something that I respect from Richard Williams, where he just gives it to you how it is. You know, he, he, he won't sugarcoat it. You know, when someone does something good, he'll say it. When someone does something bad, he'll say it. You know, he doesn't discriminate. He just lets you know, this is what happened. And here it is. Yeah. And and so as you were alluding, he kind of like built up businesses and then just let them go and stuff. But he says, he says, here, he does an interesting thing. He says, look, I'm about to skip ahead, but I want to set the record straight. The money I earned in business was substantial. How substantial? Many years later, when my daughters burst onto the scene, people thought of us as the poor black family from the ghetto rising up against the white tide of tennis in America. The truth was I had created a company before they were born called Richard Williams Tennis Associates, which I still own, and had saved $810,000, which was all in the bank. I paid my own kids way through tennis. I didn't want anyone to help me. I could have got sponsors, but Venus and Serena were my children. So it was my responsibility to pay for them. I never had to take one penny from anyone. However, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Yeah. Okay. So, so at this point he's like, yeah. So, so just to put a figure to the kind of stuff he was doing and don't forget, this is in the late seventies. So 810 grand back then. Yeah. is effectively if you 
factor in inflation a fuck lot right now. <laughs> it's, it's just, if you're being technical, it's like shit loads. And I think that's the thing that also, again, shocked me and I think would probably shock a lot of people is you almost think from what you hear that his career only started once Serena and Venus started making it. And it's so not the case. No. No. <laughs> like literally everything in terms of business, motivation, um, determination, all of those things are instilled by him into his kids. Yeah. And and uh, it kind of reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger because everyone thinks, oh, you know, he kind of made it after pumping iron and this kind of stuff and blah, blah, blah. No, the truth is that he'd come across to America and Arnold Schwarzenegger was already a millionaire before he even set any foot onto a film set. He, he'd he already, you know, he, that guy was... On businesses, yeah, yeah. Incredible, incredible guy. And, um, and you know, so, so Richard Williams, it's very similar in that kind of way. You know, he's already a millionaire at that stage, effectively, and just saving that money for his kids who hadn't even been born yet and shit. I mean, oh, my God. I mean, we're going to get into that properly. So I think, I think now we've kind of gone past the halfway point and... Yeah. If you're talking about just straight up crazy shit that's unbelievable that's happened in his life up to this point, that starts to subside a little bit. And, and then the, the book starts going more into relationships and then his children and everything like that. So now you're kind of getting more about the understanding of where Venus and Serena are going to come from. But <laughs> there's still, I mean, so I think we'll kind of speed through the rest of the book a bit, you know, a bit more quickly. But, um, there, there are still so many notable points that we'll just pick out. And so he ends up um, meeting uh, Oracina Price. Oracine, sorry, in, in the summer of 1978. You know, he meets her at a bus stop, fell in love with her. It's like a romantic fairy tale, all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, and um, he, you know, he just keeps pursuing her and stuff like that. And he, he was very careful. One of the things I find is really interesting because you know, it's something that I, I'm, I can't entirely understand, but I can appreciate that as a black guy in that era, who's clearly done fantastically well for himself financially, then he must have been very, very cautious about, you know, Kanye said it best about gold diggers, basically. So he he's very carefully vetted who he's going to marry. He's just obsessive about the details about this kind of stuff. And and so he he thinks, <laughs> I mean, look, he basically okay, he falls in love with her, but it's also on the proviso that he thinks that the physical attributes she has can be passed down to children, so that so that they could so that they could have like athletic prowess, you know. So between him and her, that the genetics could be passed on. Um, it's just incredible. So anyway, they get married. They um, they have. Uh, uh, was it Yatunde, who's the oldest kid, and then uh, no, sorry, she's already got children, doesn't she? Yeah, she's already she's already got two kids at at that point. And, no, and I, I think she's I got three kids actually. She's got is it three. three. Yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Yeah, Yatunde and yeah. Isha and Lynn. So she's who's like seven, five, and one. So she's already got three kids. And well, he doesn't have any children at this point. And I think he has an older son. You know? Oh yeah, I uh, think yeah, so. he has, but he never really mentions him. No, um, in 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 the in the book though. Yeah, there's yeah there's a couple of funny things like that. So yeah, um, but yeah, so he take he takes on her family as well, and um, 
uh, yeah so it's very interesting i mean that i don't think we need to get into to kind of everything no, like no. yeah um, I, I think the the one aspect here which is now i suppose the interesting part uh, and i believe it is in this chapter is where he sets the scene of how he now embarks on this path of tennis yeah, where he's like exactly. literally in his house with his wife she's basically changing channels and his channel comes up and then she's you know she, she goes to the next channel and he's like no 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 turn it back so there's basically this this image of this 25 year old white girl who's now being handed a forty thousand dollar check for playing tennis so richard williams is there looking at this like let me get this straight she got paid forty thousand dollars for four days of playing tennis yeah as a woman and i think that was the thing that just was shocking for him he had never looked he had never been interested in tennis never gave a damn about it but the sheer fact that as a woman forty thousand dollars for four days of work it's almost like he had like a prophetic vision and like a light bulb just flashed in his mind and he's like i'm have two kids two daughters yeah and they're going to be tennis world champions I raced home and went into my office and read the article over and over again. I found myself fantasizing about my as-yet-unborn daughters playing tennis. If one woman could win that much money, I wanted two daughters to play the game. Double the winnings. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's unbelievable. And it's like this rocket, this, this light bulb moment, like you say. And, you know, if you think about what creativity really is it's joining the dots that's essentially what creativity is it's when joining the dots that no one else can see and at this point he joins the dots that no one else on the planet can see this just comes to him and he suddenly realizes okay i need to learn about tennis so fast forward a little bit and um and he he meets this um this guy called old whiskey and, and yeah. I think I think the one other point worth mentioning oh, is is yeah. that as soon as he had this vision, he went and wrote first a seventy-eight page like business plan <laughs> um, booklet of how he was going to train these two daughters that he hasn't yet had. And then now that's now why he's embarking on this mission of looking for um, like you know tennis gurus and teachers, which which is what you're going to mention now. 78 pages. <laughs> Just so, when I read this, yeah, I was like, I need to get my fucking life together. I seriously I didn't, need I, I didn't even together. plan out today, man. I didn't even plan out today. <laughs> when I read this, it, it, you, you know when you get that moment in your life where you're like, hmm, maybe why I'm not quite getting the... Um, <laughs> Why I'm not quite getting what I want exactly how I want in life is because I haven't written a 78 page plan two and a half years before I actually even have the tools necessary to embark on that plan, which will still take me another 15 to 16 years for it to come into fruition. This is crazy. Amazing. Just like, I mean, crazy in the fucking highest compliment possible because, yes. you know, yes. look at this guy and then look at me and Jesus. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not a favorable comparison. <laughs> anyway. I, so. By the way, I, st- I started writing out a plan, but I'm, uh, I'm still on like half a page at the moment. <laughs> yeah, just remember to save the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not even discuss that. <laughs> 
Oh man. Anyway, so he meets a guy yeah. called Old. Uh, sorry, who, called Oliver, whose nickname is Old Whiskey, because that's what he drank for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yet somehow, he he kept his composure long enough to give tennis lessons. So um, so this guy, I mean, it's really funny. Like he just fell in love with him in in terms of like the, the tennis lessons and stuff. And there's real real crazy connection and stuff. So. Williams realizes, look, I need to understand tennis properly. So he's getting tennis lessons from old whiskey. And, uh, and, he, and then he gets pretty good. And then basically kind of like over the next few chapters, or he, he starts to understand, hang on. The funniest thing he understands is that he, he decides to do an open stance. He uses an open stance in tennis, which no one had ever really done before. Um, so, so here's this guy, Richard Williams. Yeah, who's learning from a drunk who thinks he knows better than every tennis player who's ever lived. And, yep. and mind you, he's telling the drunk at the time, I'm learning tennis because I'm going to have daughters in two years' time and I need to be able to train them because they're going to become world champions. Let's put that into context. At the same time, he's doing all types of... He's doing boxing training. He's doing basketball training for, high, for um, hand-eye movement coordinations. He's doing football training. He even now learns how to dance in order to get the right movements in terms of balance. So it's literally like, like kickboxer Jean-Claude Van Damme, like literally, isn't it? It is. Like, it's amazing. The, the, it's, it's the montage like moment of, of this film, isn't it? <laughs> like just Richard Williams's montage, you know, it's <laughs> crazy. So at, at this point, you're almost like, what can't he do? You know, like, and, and also, and, and I think the thing that's interesting is, is as he's meeting and discussing with these people, he's actually telling them their story. So I'm just imagining myself now, this is probably 1979. I meet this guy called Richard Williams and he's there trying to learn how to play tennis, telling me how he's going to have his two daughters become world champions. And then flashback, flash forward 20 years later, you're at home watching, <laughs> you're, you're home watching your TV and there he is on TV winning Wimbledon or something. I mean, his daughter's winning Wimbledon. It's just that feeling of that person who was in that situation. Yeah. Must be inspirational though. Yeah. Yeah. That's one word for it. You would just be like, what the fuck is going on? You really would be. You really would be. You think is this a wind up basically? Yes. But, um, so anyway, he, he he starts playing tennis and, you know, he fancies himself. And he, and he goes to this place called Linwood Park where there's very kind of fancy black people and he thinks they're very pretentious and he's going to whip their ass. So he ends up losing six love, six love, six love. <laughs> he just gets his ass kicked at tennis because, you know, listen, if you've been playing for eight weeks or something, you're not going to beat people who've been playing for 20 years. But if there's anything you should have figured out about Richard Williams by this point in the podcast stroke book then it's that he doesn't give up easily. And once he applies himself to something, he, the guy is absolutely focused on it 100%. Everything else, just, you know, he practically, like, just sods off work to go and play tennis, like, every day. And, and it's just unbelievable. So, um, you know, he's kind of going back and forth all this stuff. And, and there's this guy called the Colonel who's, like, the arch enemy, like the Ivan Drago figure in this thing. And, um, and then so Williams beats him six love, six love. And, uh, yeah, it's just quite funny that 
you know, he, like you said, he's doing all these kind of things. He's doing boxing, dancing, this, that. You know, it's just amazing. And don't forget, this he's got nothing to do with anything in terms of... This is not his plan. He's not going to become a professional tennis player. These that's his, what's oh, crazy. You see, that's, that's the thing. So imagine in his mind, you're putting in all this work. It's not like he had the kid and he noticed the kid had some talent. Hey, maybe we should get them into tennis. No, it's like he literally had the kids because he had the vision. I need daughters in order to make this vision become a reality. Hello, wife. We're going to have two daughters because they're going to become <laughs> world champions. Richard, are you feeling okay, darling? It's literally one of those moments. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, she must have been looking at him like, he's crazy. Like. All right. So, so, so the last, let me read the last page in this chapter. Yeah. My height was a bit... <laughs> Sorry, I might crack up at moments. My height was a bit beyond six feet, and Orosine was a six-footer. I was pretty sure our daughters would be at least as tall. Height was a good feature. If tennis was a washout, they could become basketball players. A sport I loved far more than tennis anyway. So he's already plotting anyway, like backup plans. But would they be true athletes? Some claimed athleticism was inherited. If that was true, I knew my daughters would be great. Orosine was terrific at sports, and I had always been a successful athlete. As a basketball player, I could shoot, rebound, dribble, and pass with the best of them. In football, I was as fast as the wind, and if anyone tried to tackle me, I blew right past him. My attitude was I could not be stopped. The same mentality I planned to instill in my daughters now that I had enough game to teach them. I was out to prove that in the upcoming 80s, powder puff hitters would evolve, blah, 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 blah. The new generation would be bigger, better, faster, taller. That was my idea. That was the plan. My daughters would inherit my knowledge and take the world by storm as soon as they were born. So, so literally, yeah, they're coming out of the womb and the amount of pressure effectively that he's placing on them due to his 78-page plan and his wife... He'd predestined her as well because she was good at sports and a six-footer. He's even got a backup plan that just in case they don't take to tennis, they'll be good at basketball as well. <sighs> Fucking right. hell, man. Like, oh, like man. That's, 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 that's all I can say because to be honest, like, it's prophetic vision. Like, when I reach that state, already by now, obviously, as you're reading the book, you already realize that this guy is not a normal human being as how we would define him in this day and age, yeah? But at this point, at this point in the book, yeah? Okay, so imagine at this point, it's gone from being uh, an action-based movie, yeah? At this point, it goes into biblical proportions. Like, literally, like, it, this is what happens. It's like this biblical slash fantasy world where it's just that crazy, you know? It makes pursuit of happiness look like, you know what I'm saying? Like... Just a normal, everyday occurrence. Do you know what? At this point in chapter 18, I was kind of thinking, okay, he was just going to explain how the children were just born and he didn't even inseminate his wife or something. It was like a miracle. Of- <laughs> 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 his wife was like, how am I pregnant? We haven't had sex for 28 <laughs> months or something. And, um, anyway. And at this point, we're like two thirds away into the book. By now, I'm calling everybody I know. And I'm already like Shit. telling them, like, you need to get this book straight away and read it. Yeah. 
and and I just want to say so in two things about him that I think make him so special is that one he's a tactician and secondly he's a visionary and in many ways like even if you look at people such as like um Steve Jobs and I know people will be like how can you compare Richard Williams to Steve Jobs you really can <laughs> in yeah, terms of yeah of course you it, can for sure it, in in terms of what he's been able to achieve the process of how he's been able to achieve that is no different from anybody that you would consider as, you know, someone has been able to see the future and make it manifest. He's just done it through people, you know, but that's the same premise, right? Well, yeah, Jobs did it through people as well. I mean, Jobs yeah. without Wozniak, what would he have yeah. done, really? Yeah. yeah. You know, he, he, Jobs, Jobs yeah. absolutely used people as his tool because he was he was a, you know, he was a decent, you know, he knew his way around computers. He was all right, but he wasn't exactly like the best programmer or anything. But he channeled that into into people and inspired them and scared the shit out of them and it, yeah. and drove them onto greater things. And and Williams does that, but within his own family, you know? Yeah. And, and chapter 18, you know, we're going to speed through like the last part of the book because sure. um, it's more about Venus and Serena and, and basically... They're not the stars of this book, bizarrely enough. They're just not. So anyway, he says, look, he says, you know, they're born, Venus is born on June the 17th, 1980. Serena is born on September the 26th, 1981. So, so they're born. And then, then what does he do, Cage? What does he do? Okay, where this do is the, this, this, this is the part of the story, yeah, where I'm like, what the, you know, Okay, so imagine now he's he's living, and and I I really pity his wife, yeah, because at this point she must just think she is married to a nutcase, like you know, no, just being honest, yeah. So they're living in a decent, nice neighborhood on Long Beach by the beach, yeah. And he goes, let me think. Mm, all the great champions in the world, or people that I respect, like Muhammad Ali, like Malcolm X, they've come from the ghetto. What am I gonna do? I need to move my entire family into the ghetto because that is going to give them that extra ability and endurance and strength that they're going to need in order to survive. So obviously at this point, he tells his wife this. His wife looks at him and tells him, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like I followed you up to now. Yeah. But at this stage, I can't go along with this, Richard. You are crazy. Yeah. Eventually, of course, him being the prophet he is, he convinces her to move to Compton, which is now invaded by gangbangers, violence, criminal activity. It's basically hell on earth. Even to the point where at times he's like, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Yeah. After two days, he said, maybe I fucked yeah. up. And, and because, you know what was crazy when I read this part of the book is like, in my mind... Serena, Venus, and all of, uh, had always just come from Compton, you know. I never realized he moved them into Compton, you know. And, but the, in the same way, I get what he was trying to do it, on, from two formats. One, in terms of the story that it tells, and in terms of the, the element of how it inspires a whole generation of black people. Like, look, they came from nothing, yeah. They came from the same community as us. Yeah. And I think in a way he was actually giving another gift to the black community. Yeah. But at the same time, also trying to toughen up his kids, you know, survival of the fittest, basically. 
Yeah. And at this point, I have to say that, you know, on, on this podcast, uh, you know, if you've never listened before, but I, I do frequently mention my son who's, you know, just over two and a half. And now I've got another son on the way who at the time of Rex. recording is like, thank you. At the time of recording is like four weeks away from popping out. So, um, so basically at this point in the book, I'm, I'm reading it and thinking, wow, you know, I mean, <clears throat> like when he moves Venus and Serena, they're, they're, like what three or something venus is three serena's two something like that and i'm like shit you know i've got a kid the same age one on the way and i just can't believe certain things that he's doing and, and he can't believe in retrospect he's probably thinking i, I was just crazy at this point i was wild this is you know? this is his moses moment basically like follow me i'm gonna take you to and then everyone's looking at him like uh i'm not sure about me following you but it was literally like that yeah yeah, I'll go to the promised land, but not to Compton, basically. <laughs> so, so okay, so long to the short, there's, there are tennis courts in Compton that he kind of, he wants the girls to learn on. However, they are controlled by gangbangers, and there's a president, the president of, of that particular gang is called Too Evil. And, um, and he ends up just, you know, he ends up just getting beats from them. He needed the tennis courts, and he needed his girls to learn and, and you know, have a harsh environment because he's trying to toughen them up which is genius really is absolutely genius because tennis is one of the most you know cordial and gentlemanly sports on earth and and but then that doesn't necessarily produce the right results you know what you need to do is just do the exact opposite so like he's already pioneered the open stance at this point He's going to bring in athleticism of his girls because he chose his fucking wife like that. <laughs> and, and now, and now this guy, Mr. Richard Dove Williams, is, is going to antagonize the gangs controlling the tennis courts. And um, look, for two years, for, for two, two years, years going to so get we, beat down. Gonna, oh my God. He just gets beat down for two, in front of his girls frequently. Yeah. And, um, and like he's he's like forty one, you know, early forties at this point, and um, and and I think the one beat down he got where it it just I was just like, okay, Richard, like at some point you just I was like, damn, like where he he now gets confronted by six to seven gang members, and they literally stomp him out and kick out ten of his teeth. Yeah. And I think the next day or the day after, he now goes looking for these gang members with a shotgun, yeah, because he now wants to kill them. And they now flee, yeah. And then later on, and this was another part of the book where I was like, mm, I'm not sure if he might have shot, you know, one of these <laughs> gang members, yeah. Because later on, he, he goes around and he finds... One of these gang members, like now when he couldn't find them anymore, and he says at that point that he would have, you know, shot and killed them. He wanted to kill every one of the guys who beat him down. And when he came home, he found now one of these gang members lying in the street dead, you know. And that's when he realized that, you know, good thing he hadn't found them because he couldn't have lived with seeing those family members of that gang member in such pain. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. That's all I'm going to say on that part. Like, yeah, I had my suspicions. We don't snitch. No. <laughs> so, um, so, so then you know, Venus and Serena are watching all of this. Yeah, they're they're the stars of this, and they're the ones who are noticing everything. You know, they're not they're not just dumb kids who are, who are clueless to all this. And uh, but what really inspires Richard is that 
One day, uh, Venus, and St- Venus and I stayed on the court for an hour. After practice, we picked up the balls. When we approached where the fight had taken place, she says, Oh, Daddy, you're so brave. The other people were scared, but not my Daddy. I'm going to be just like you when I grow up. I asked, What do you mean by that, Venus? She answered, I'm going to be champion of tennis and queen of the court. No one will ever be able to beat me, just like they can't beat you. And that really inspires him. So he says, Maybe all those cuts and bruises I carried were worth it. And... um and, and anyway, so this kind of continues for a while and it eventually kind of negotiates with them. He ends up hiring them to shout abuses. <laughs> Sorry, you need to take this part. This is just okay. too much, man. So I, I got to set the scene. So imagine now he has, no, literally when this part, I was like, come on. Like at this point, it's like over, it's like overkill. You're just like, this guy is on, on some next level in terms of training, like, uh, Mr. Miyagi was looking down from heaven like, yo, this guy is, is, is the, he's the, tr-. so basically he has his daughters on the court and he hires, you know, all these different people to basically scream insults like you dirty nigger, this, that, you stupid bitch. Like every insult you can imagine that will be thrown at them later on when they do play tennis. Who does that? And I think there were eight or nine at the time. I mean, it's genius because obviously he's toughening their minds. He's getting them ready to be in hostile environments. He's letting them know that, look, when you're faced against adversity, you have to be able to block out the unnecessary noise. But obviously to normal human beings at that time, without knowing what the results of where they're going to eventually go to, it would seem like abuse. Yeah. Now it's genius. At the time, it must yeah. have looked like abuse. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, and that is a point that I was going to raise. You know, that at what point in today's modern society would they look at this and think, "Well, that's not fucking happening." <laughs> you know, you you can't, you can't do that. You know, you're taking two young girls. What what could happen to these young girls? Even if it's just a stray bullet, you know. Yeah. Um, let alone what you're doing to them. But but then the thing is, is that when you when you look at the when you look at how greatness is created yeah it's not just some sort of inane talent not inane talent in you know innate talent that suddenly manifests itself no it's a series of incredibly hard work tough decisions and um frequently brutal treatment by the environment or parents you know look at prince prince died earlier this year Prince's dad was a fucking mentalist. That guy was crazy and used to pretty much, you know, Prince doesn't, didn't never talked about it much, but his dad used to pretty much abuse him, make him practice ridiculous hours every day, all this kind of stuff. And then that ended up manifesting itself as quote unquote greatness. Yeah. Look at Michael Jackson. Look at Beyonce. People don't talk about Beyonce, but Jesus, like, look at her dad, you know, all these kind of things. And then look at, look at Richard Williams with his kids. But I would say he's different, though, because if you look at all those other cases, the one thing that you must admit is when you see Serena and when you see Venus, they seem completely balanced, completely happy, completely content, you know. And when you see also his methods of how he, you know, taught them how to manage money, how by the time Serena was five, she had the savings account, how they had to actually have books, where they write in it, what their dreams, what, um, what their aspirations are, but more importantly, how do they plan to achieve those dreams and aspirations. So he's actually had a whole methodology for them to be independent 
individual. So he's not like he's enforced. He's given them the tools. He hasn't necessarily made it easy, but he hasn't made it neither impossible or hard. If, if you see what I'm saying, it's, it's not like he took away their joy of being kids. He just instilled in them values that later on would provide them balance. Like, for example, one of the scenes where he takes them into the ghetto, like or to a really bad, even a worse part of the neighborhood of the ghetto. And he shows them like prostitutes. He shows them drunkards. He shows them people on drugs. And he goes like, this is what you could be. If you're not careful. And then he takes them to Beverly Hills and he shows them, you know, the, the nice scenery. And he's like, this is also what you could be depending on how you want to apply yourself. You know, and I think another aspect that is so important with him is that he taught his kids about money from a very early age. Where I think a lot of people don't do that. So they yeah. were working. Any money that they made from a young age, he put it directly into their account. He made them appreciate and understand the value of money, but also not to be a slave to it. Yeah, I think those are fantastic points. And <clears throat> if we're talking about raising children, then again, this kind of like cuts home for me because, you know, I, there are so many lessons from this section of the book that you can apply to raising your own children, you know, um, in, in a number of ways. And I think the greatest thing that I got from this book was that I can't, I can't remember exactly where it is now, but he, he's, he basically says, look, you know what the greatest gift I gave my children was? It's confidence. And that's something that, that just that phrase, I am like, I'm like, fuck yeah. Do you know what? I'm, I'm quite a confident person. <laughs> really, just so? <laughs> but I, I think <laughs> that's an understatement of the year. But I think people would say the same thing about me. It's like, I can't really make fun of you on that side. Exactly, right back. Border, borderline arrogance. <laughs> but yeah, like... <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yes, guilty as charged. However... I'm, I want to, do you know what? I want my children to be confident. I want to, and it's not just a matter of me, you know, blustering and bravado and stuff and say, oh yes, be confident. No, you have to actually teach them, give them the right tools to, because confidence comes through knowing how to maneuver through certain situations well through repeated trial and error, but also having that safety net that you know, you know, the world's not going to collapse. You know, someone's got your back yeah. and I want to have my children's back, you know, no matter what. And I want to give them that stable, um, you know, that bedrock of confidence throughout their life so that they can apply it to anything. You know, it, it's interesting because Serena at one point is like, oh, daddy, I want to be a vet. Yeah, I want to be a veterinarian. And he's like, she's going to be a fucking great vet. <laughs> if that's what she chooses to be, she's going to be a great vet. Fine. No problems, you know. Now, obviously, he's got these dreams of, of tennis. But as you were saying before, these are transferable skills because they've worked so hard and they're so level-headed and they're confident and they're good with money and all these kind of things. So, I mean, really, I think because time is ticking on, we should probably fast forward a bit to when they're like 16 or something. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the, the 16, I think, I think Serena's 16 and Venus is like 17 or something stupid like that. And they move out. <laughs> Yeah, they're like, they're like, look, we've had enough. Yeah, we're moving out, and they just go start renting their own place. And he's a bit like, uh, no, no, you're not. And they're like, yes, we are. And then, um, and they do it. And he's like, do you know what? Great, actually, that's that's brilliant. It was the right decision in retrospect, and it gave them even more confidence. You know, and and I think, and, and, uh, yeah, and I think another thing that was also really interesting was the fact that he mentions that 
any time that they had any business dealing, he would insist or any contract, he would insist that they're there from the start to the end asking questions about that contract. Whereas you see a lot of parents in those situations who might be trying to eat off their kids, yeah, will be looking at ways of making themselves um, useful for the rest of those kids' lives. Whereas with Richard Williams, it wasn't that. He was already successful beforehand, yeah? He had this prophetic vision that he wanted to manifest and come and make it come to life. But at the same time, he wasn't trying to hold his kids. Um, he didn't need them for him to be successful, you know? He just wanted to give them something special and give the world something that they hadn't seen um, seen before. So, I mean, to be honest, his parenting skills were phenomenal. And I think even some points where he mentions again that's really interesting was when he was actually refusing them to play certain tournaments. And the guys, I mean, the, and the tournament, the people who run the tournament couldn't understand it. They're like, no, if you don't let your daughters run, um, play these tournaments, they're not going to be at the level they need to be. And he was like, look, there's more important things than tennis. And I think that's an aspect of Mr. Williams that the world doesn't really get to see. A lot of people assume he's this, you know, overbearing parent that wanted his kids to play tennis 24 seven. There were points where he would always tell them, look, as soon as the tennis game is over, don't even speak. I mean, don't speak about tennis. It's done. It's over. Let's talk about other things, but not tennis. Yeah, that's fantastic points. And um, <clears throat> I, I think really the, the only kind of, Okay, Venus and Serena, they're kind of growing older and um, they're, they're getting better and stuff like that. They start winning, things like this. The only point really that I wanted to make, uh, this uh, we're kind of nearing the end of the book, mm -hmm. is the Indian, the Indian Wells situation. Yes. Um, because otherwise I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's too much else I really wanted to talk about, to be honest. And... Um, <laughs> Because there's just so much in this book, and, and really, you know, we don't. Just in case someone's listening to this and they've made it this point and haven't just stopped and gone and bought the book, then um, there, there is, you know, there's still so much in this book that we've not even covered. Um, the Indian Wells thing is something that older, you know, people our age might remember, but basically, they're, they're in a tournament and um, it was just shocking racial abuse that they had. Uh, I mean, I say shocking, but you know, it's just it's just crazy that in this millennium then um then these kind of things were happening to venus and serena and and this is 2001 I, I guess, yeah this is 2001 and um and like he's getting it from all sides basically the media starting to round on him and um so i think venus was injured wasn't she yes and um i think was it venus and serena were supposed to be in the final against each other and he's getting accused of manipulating things and fixing matches and blah, 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 blah. And then Venus pulled out because she had genuine injury. Um, and, and so basically the crowd just loses it. The crowd just absolutely loses it. And you start getting racial slurs thrown around and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, what else happened in this? Yeah, I mean, it, it was just horrific. I mean, and also the fact that the media wasn't saying that this was, you know, unacceptable behavior. They were kind of like justifying it um, that, uh, you know, it's understandable that the crowd is upset because they wanted to see Venus or Serena play. And I think in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's kind of sad how people think, you know. At the end of the day, she's a professional athlete. If she isn't in 
the condition to play, why should she risk her health? You know what I'm saying? It's like if you're sick and you can't work, you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna go into work regardless because everyone, you know, unless and and you know if it's a, if it's potentially gonna mean that for the next you know six months whatever you you wouldn't be able to go back into work and and it, it, this was just another example and i like and i like the fact that he brings it back again at near the end of the book that you know how big racism still plays a part it doesn't matter if it's 1942 1950 1960 70 80 90 even now in 2001 when they're the pinnacle of their professional careers Racism is still following them. And the fact here that um, Serena was still able to be graceful, still be able to be poised and not let herself get sucked into this is now another proud moment for him. And another example of how he has through them, basically they're like the, the new improved version of him in terms of being able to handle and deal with these type of situations where he might have dealt with it in a different way at their age. Yeah, exactly. And he says that he's shocked slightly by, you know, the reaction at Indian Wells and the racism and stuff like that. But really, he's not. No. Yes, <laughs> he's, yes, yes. He, he's kind of, you know, he's, it's almost hardwired into him by this point, which it would be because of his formative ages, the, the kind of things that he experienced, which we've already covered, these kind of things, I mean, it, it would change you, right? Yeah. So, and yeah. I think there's that one quote in the book, I don't know if we mentioned it earlier in where you know after he's lost his um his third friend where he basically goes like from that moment I've never had a friend in my life I never allowed yeah. myself to have a friend in my life and the way he says it you feel it you know but you can understand yeah. it at the same time and that's and that's kind of like just sums him up where he's been through so much he loves his daughters and his family but everyone else well look man <laughs> He, he's had to survive through all these, you know, tribulations and trials and he's come through it. But you don't come through that without having some scars and battle wounds that affect you. So he's not going to be this fun, lovable, happy, go lucky guy that maybe the media wants to see. Because guess what? His life hasn't been that. Yeah. And and at this point, I think we should probably wrap the actual book up because there's not too much yes. else to say and like anything else, just leave it for, for potential readers. But after I finished the book, the first thing I wanted to do was just track down where Serena and Venus were going to play next. Hope Richard Williams was there. I'd go up to him and just shake his hand and say, thank you for this book. I sent, I you know. sent. Uh... <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that. But I literally... Um, I literally, I've never done this and I would never really do this, but I literally sent an Instagram, um, DM to Serena. Like, you know, obviously I respect you, Serena, but it's not even about you. I just want you to tell your dad, I am so appreciative for him being so honest and writing such an incredible book. And really this book is a gift. I mean, I don't know if people might've, you know, like books like The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Yeah, this yeah. is that book on that type of level. It will have that that same impact. What's even more powerful about it is, is that it's someone's real life story. So, I mean, whether it's a book on business, whether it's a book on planning, whether it's a book on fatherhood, whether it's, a, you know, a book on prophetic visions and having like how many times have you or anybody in your life had a vision that appears in your mind, but you just haven't had the heart to go through it because you've said, Guess what? No, it probably won't go anywhere. 
But he yeah. had that vision, stuck to it for 20 years, and look where he got him. Let's not forget that both his daughters are considered the, in the top 10 greatest players of all time. And Serena easily, arguably, the greatest female player of all time. And he doesn't have one, but two in the top 10. That's an incredible feat. It's not luck, yeah. you know? And, and the other thing we have to mention is that... Um it's just the most blindingly obvious point is that tennis was 99.9% white dominated sport for the history of tennis until these two girls came along. There have been, there have been, a, I can't really remember any black female players. I can remember certainly a couple of black male players, but I mean, not that many who were truly notable, you know, they had kind of odd little successes and stuff. Um, I mean, I mean, there's Alpha Ash, and 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 then yeah, and, there's and, Arthur Ash, and, yeah. and and then there was a female. I, I think I believe her name is Gail. Like she was the first black woman ever to win Wimbledon um, back in I think it's 1957. Forgive me, I can't remember her name right now. But he, she is one of the people that he looked at and researched when he went into this. But other than her. There hasn't been any. Sure, I didn't even know yeah, that. Yeah, I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and she actually won several different. Uh, she also won the French Open, I believe. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. Well, that <laughs> shows how much I know. But, uh, uh, but if I mean, if you're still talking about like just sheer numbers, it was very much a white-dominated sport. Um. And and he certainly, you know, laid down the foundations for the reinvention of the entire sport certainly within the female realms um and, and it's it's pretty amazing just to have that that vision and to execute it as well you know like you were saying listen all of us have great ideas yeah but how often do we actually make them happen and especially plan them so meticulously and then have the wherewithal to execute them properly come what may and also to put ourselves in the dangerous situations just for the sake of it i mean just to just to benefit that kind of vision it it, it is almost mental isn't it i mean you know we've got to say it's almost mental if you're looking at it objectively it, you, you'd sort of put this person in front of a psychiatrist and they'd be like what the fuck are you doing like this is too extreme you're going too extreme but in the end he was right you know he was actually right and, and c coming from where he came from he had to do that. Like, let's say, I mean, I, I read um, the Steve Jobs autobiography. I've read Arnold Schwarzenegger autobiography. Great autobiographies. The level of struggle and what they had to go through to achieve their dreams, with all due respect to them, doesn't come anywhere <laughs> close, yeah? No, to, to what? No, I mean, you know, and... I mean, even I mean, I'm a, I'm a, even when you read Malcolm X's autobiography, which which is a great autobiography, but this autobiography, like you literally live almost all those moments with him. It's written so well that you're you're in Richard Williams's skin. You know, you're affected by 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 his story and by what he's telling you. You you're not basically. I mean, I suppose in in two formats of autobiographies, you can be outside the car looking into the guy driving or you could be in the car with 
the guy driving, that's how it feels with this heading towards a wall about a crash into the wall. That's how it felt at times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? But, but you know, on the other side of that wall is just this sheer greatness. Yes. You know, achievement, real achievement. And, 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 you know, the funny thing is, is that, okay, you're talking, we're talking about Venus and Serena achieving and, ch- you know, changing the realms of their sports and stuff like that and, and wild success. But the thing is, the guy, <laughs> the guy made like a hundred and, uh, no, sorry, $810,000 in like 1978. Yeah. Accumulated it all for the girls. So he'd already made a big success of himself because that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of money back then. So he clearly already made, you know, like you said before, it's not that he was trying to live vicariously through his children. No, not at all. He was trying to give them the tools that they needed to succeed. And even if, you know, listen, things happen. What if Venus was 12 and, you know, like screwed her leg up and could never play professionally again or something but she would have had certain lessons and she would have succeeded at whatever she was going to do anyway because he taught them right that guy what a fucking father yeah and and that's 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 how i i felt like when i read this story i was just like you respected him a as a man yeah because he had integrity he had honor he did what he had to do and the fact that even though he might have had fear at some points in different situations, he was still fearless because he approached the situations with whatever it takes, I'm going to get through it. And I don't know many people. I, I, I don't think I know anybody <laughs> who would have gone to the extremes that he's gone through. And I think that's what is incredible about this book is the method of how he's achieved his success. I believe anyone could actually emulate it, yeah? But you would be ha- you, you would have to put in an incredible amount of hard work and dedication. It wasn't like he was some natural genius where, you know, where you know, mathematical genius or things just came to him easily. No, he literally it could have been anybody, but he just had that extra ab- uh, ability to plan, stick to his plan and continuously day in, day out, read books, study, evaluate, ask questions, you know, look for opportunities, find the opportunity and expand on that opportunity, you know? Incredible. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, I, I think, is there anything about the book that we want to mention uh, extra to that? Do you want to mention the last part of the book where he talks about his son, or do you want to leave that surprise for them? When no, I think okay. I think we should right. leave that. <laughs> I, think, I just want to apologize if we've given too much information for the book. But let, let me just say, from my perspective, what my objective was um, by joining this podcast was just to really encourage you to go out and read this book because I honestly believe that this book is is really a gift to the world. It's, it's, it's only something that, that, that's going to do you good. You know, it's just going to put your life in perspective. It's going to give you that, that extra motivation. And it's also going to make you think outside the box. I think that's really what it did for me. And also all those times where I've known I should have done something and I didn't do it. This was kind of like a reminder and a clear sign for me of like, now I see why I should have followed or gone with my instinct on that on that occasion. Yeah. And, and l- let me ask you one question mm-hmm. as a black man, do you think that this should be kind of like 
requisite reading for for black listen. kids basically <laughs> nelson <laughs> loaded question. listen listen nelson mandela long walk to freedom malcolm x autobiography Ewan Newton, Revolutionary Suicide, yeah? Richard Williams, Black and White, is easily up there, if not even more impactful than some of those books, yeah? Just because, you know, a lot of these other, um, let's say, f- figures in history have a legacy, yeah? Um, how they're writing those stories obviously has to be written in such a way that remains politically correct, yeah? So you don't get necessarily get to see the full nitty gritty of what really went on. It's now polished. It's now cleaned up a bit for it to have its proper place in history. This book is literally giving it to you how it really happened, you know? And I think that's now what also makes it so special in comparison to a lot of books of, you know, you know, historic figures, because in many ways he didn't give a fuck and he didn't have to give a fuck because everybody only knows him because of, Serena and Venus, right? Yeah. But now he kind of gives you the, it's, it's kind of like, I suppose in, in many ways, um, like how you were discussing with the, <laughs> the Star Wars movies, like on, on your podcast. Yeah. And you have the, the, the movies now and the prequel. Now what, what's more important, but this is what explains to you why certain characters became who they were. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Um, okay, well, I think I think that's covered the book in pretty <laughs> pretty great detail. To be honest, um, I, I mean, I've got I've got two more points to make. Basically, um, the first point is is that please don't sue us, uh, members of the Williams Foundation or Trust, because you know we are such massive fans of this book we just think it honestly it's the best thing since sliced bread it's one of the best things that i've ever read and it, and it really and i'm sure cage thinks the same and it it's um it's so impactful that we just i know we've obviously talked a lot about and read past passages out of the book but we want people to buy this and like, just like we've bought it. And, um, you know, Cage has gone and bought like 20 copies for his friends and family and stuff, you know, Handing it um, like, which, yeah. which is what I did with Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich. This is exactly yeah, one of, this yeah. is exactly one of That's those books. Book. Book. And it's a book that I actually buy multiple copies and hand out to, to close friends and family members. This book is I mean, goes without saying, like literally people think I'm crazy or I have some type of investment. I, I don't understand why this book is in a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I mean, it's not, do you know what? The thing is, I can understand it because Richard Williams rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. Yeah. Just, and, but once you've read this book, you understand why. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You understand, <laughs> and to be honest, you're like well, he was pretty nice and polite about it, considering what he's been through, you know. And and that's yeah. the thing that surprises me. That I mean, and yeah, I mean, did the media not? You know, the key members of the media not read this book, you know? Because once you read it, you really understand his story. You uh, you have to empathize and understand where he's coming from. Yeah. But I mean, but this book only came out like what two years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. In fact, maybe even less than two years yeah, ago. I think so. 2014. Uh, yeah, was it 2012 yes. or 2014? No, no, I think it was 2014. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, so it is very recent. Um. The the second point I wanted to make before we, we wrap up everything is um, 
it, he actually had a stroke in in uh, yes. June yes. 2016, yes. which is very sad. Um, in fact, in fact, someone that I know very closely just had a stroke a few weeks ago, and and like the impact is just shocking. So, um, there's not much information about how he's doing now, um, a few months on. But obviously, our thoughts and wishes are with uh, with Richard Williams and his family, and with Venus and Serena and everyone. Um, we we do hope he makes a recovery of sorts, and um, uh, yeah, there's just no information. So because I was looking and thinking, oh, you know, how is he actually doing? But you know, no idea other than he's kind of the only thing I read was that he was frustrated with hospital and said it's like being in prison. <laughs> it's just like it's the most Richard Williams thing. He's like the guy's just had a fucking stroke yeah. and he's like, get me out of this hospital, get me out of this. But um, but you know, we, we we do really hope that he's doing okay, and um, yeah, just man thank you for this book it's just crazy i'm so glad that we got to do a podcast on it as well because um yeah it's just uh, it's such a worthwhile subject i mean like, um, like like i said from the moment i saw that look in your eye when you were describing <laughs> the book yeah and i have that look now in my eye as well and everybody listening to this podcast if you buy that book yeah you will have that look in your eye where someone is just going to know that they need to get this book in their life it's as simple yeah. as for sure, for sure. Um, so on that note, I mean, let's let's wrap things up. Are there any um, any sort of promotional shout-outs and stuff that you want to do and, uh, you know, N- anything you want to push? Not at all. I mean, I think in just, just in honor and, and utmost respect for, for Richard Williams is just get this book. I mean, like, it, to be honest, that's the best gift possible that, that you can get is, <laughs> is just to get a copy of this book. And then you can thank me okay. later. Uh, okay um i would like to say that my new 78 page business plan is on amazon you can buy it for two (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so okay well thanks again once again to um to cage sparks that was absolutely fantastic we really got in deep to that and um appreciate you having i i I just want to go off and read the thing again to be perfectly honest i'm just like it's just such a great book i think once a year Um, like i do with think and grow rich i might have to do that that's exactly it yeah that's exactly it um i'd put for me way of the peaceful warrior by dan milman is one of my favorite books and that kind of centers me spiritually the alchemist Think and Grow Rich is a great one. The Millionaire Next Door is an excellent one. There are certain books that I like to read every one, one or two years yeah. that just kind of keep me on track, you know, and this is definitely, definitely going to be one of those books. So uh, thanks once again to Cage Sparks for this uh, special Transatlantic Rebels podcast on Richard Williams, The Way I See It, uh, Black and White. And um, yeah, uh, if Cage says peace. Peace. And... I, Jessel, say peace to you. All right, peace.